recorded live. Adolf Hitler sagt wie eine Junge ein Stern, die frischte Sonne auf vor Kurz und Sturm. Die Zukunft ist neu und abbreiten, die unser Vater mit ihm ist hoch. Helle Klingen, deutscher Stadt, unser ganzes Saturdays. Thank you for listening and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Today is Saturday, April 21st, 2012, one day after Adolf Hitler's 123rd birthday. Adolf Hitler was not a Christian identist. Like most nationalists do even today, Adolf Hitler took it for granted that the Old Testament was a Jewish book and often pointed out those qualities in it which seemed to be Jewish. Yet, Hitler was a Christian, and Hitler understood that Christ was an Aryan, if for no other reason than the fact that his very nature was so contrary to the nature of the Jews. And Hitler recognized that. 
that his very nature was so much like the nature of the Aryan and not of the Jew. And Hitler recognized that. Hitler was not, however, a Judeo-Christian. And while he expressed the importance of the major sects of Christianity in providing a moral foundation for the people of the nation, he had no real care for the clerics and often pointed out their faults. The major fault Hitler found with the clerics was their missionary work to non-Aryans as they let Aryans back at home slip into immorality. Hitler certainly understood and insisted that in order to have a healthy folk, it must be a moral folk. Like Hitler, Christian identists also reject the professional clerics and we should reject their missionary activities to alien tribes for whom Christianity was never intended in the first place. Hitler stood against globalism. He saw globalism as a vehicle of both Jewish capitalism and Jewish Marxism, as the goal for Jewish capitalism and Jewish Marxism. And he understood correctly that all of these were different arms of the same beast and that all were aimed at the destruction of all non-Jewish nations. He understood that the Jew, an international creature, sought to subvert every nation and was effective at that subversion through the command which he had of international finance. Hitler also understood that the Jew is the destroyer of the integrity of all creation and especially of our race. Adolf Hitler was trying to free his nation from the slavery of Jewish usury, and Christian identists would love to see the world freed of Jewish usury. Hitler's fascism was the first and only nationwide and democratically elected anti-Jewish banker movement in modern times, unless you want to count Mussolini's fascism, which, was, uh, which I see as somewhat different. Many so-called Christian identity adherents still mired in the nonsense peddled by the Jewish press and academia are ashamed of Hitler and they're ashamed of National Socialism or they reject it as evil. The sad truth is that Adolf Hitler was clearly fighting our fight and had many of the same beliefs which we do. Christians who disparage National Socialism simply do not understand it because they have accepted all of the Jewish lies about it. On the other hand, many nationalists and many modern National Socialists disparage Christianity, and mostly because they accept all of the Jewish tales about the Bible. But the Bible was originally an Aryan book and is indeed the foundation upon which our civilization was originally built. Classical Greek and Roman civilization can find their ultimate roots in both Mesopotamia and in the Hebrew Bible. Christianity is an Aryan religion, and it is not an error that so many Germanic tribes of the first Christian millennium, actually of the first few centuries of the Christian era, so readily accepted it. Christian identists reject the Jews 
as the creators of the world's misfortunes, to borrow the title which Joseph Goebbels pinned on them. And they are also the creators of the world's perversions. All of this we have in common with Adolf Hitler, who also understood these things. Christian identists believe that the pinnacle of God's creation was the Aryan race, while the Jew has always sought to corrupt that race. Christian identists believe that we should strive above all things to care for and to preserve that race. All of this we have in common with Adolf Hitler. Hitler is quoted on pages 142 and 143 of James Murphy's Mein Kampf as having said that the sin against blood and race is the hereditary sin in this world, and it brings disaster on every nation that commits it. Christian identists also hold to this very same belief. Christian identists understand that it is a waste of time attempting to share Christian promises and ideals, along with Western civilization and civility itself, with the non-white races. All of this we have in common with Adolf Hitler, who expressed that very same thing. Both Christianity and white nationalism can find common ground, but only in Christian identity. And while this is not the primary topic of our discussion tonight, and, and we have many other things to talk about, it had to be said. Tonight we decided to get together and discuss Adolf Hitler for his 123rd birthday, which was yesterday, and hope to dispel some of the myths about him, which even Christian identists repeat. So we greet Carolyn Yeager, Severus, Hello. Oh. <laughs> brethren, and surely this may be an interesting evening. Hello, Hello. Carolyn. Brian, sword brethren. Hello, Severus. How are we doing tonight? Hey, how are you? Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And, and I don't know where we should start. Maybe ladies should go first, because we are um, what, West, civilized Western men, right? So, Carolyn, what, what would you like to say? Hi, Bill, and, and hello, uh, Sword Brethren and uh, Severus. It's nice to be on this program with you. Um, you know, Bill, I just knew you were going to say ladies first. And so I uh, had one thing I was going to say, but now I've got something else, considering what you were saying in, the, in your prologue. And so here's a quote uh, by Hitler in what is called his Platterhof speech, or at least it's one of them, the one on July 4th, 1944. So this was when many had uh, determined that the war had turned against the Germans by this time, and, uh, and it was only a matter of time. And he was, I don't, I think this speech was being given to the military people, but I'm not exactly sure. Anyway, he did say this, Perhaps I am not what they call a sanctimonious hypocrite or pious. I am not that. But deep in my heart, I am a religious man. That is, I believe that the man who, in accordance with the natural laws created by God, bravely fights and never capitulates in this world, that this man will not be abandoned by the lawgiver. Instead, he will, in the end, receive the blessings of providence. You know, this is not unusual language. For Hitler, as I'm sure you and, and the other uh, two gentlemen know, so 
Uh, this is just another example of of his deep, and he says, uh, deep in his heart, he's a religious man. And that's something that we recognize anyway, right? Well, well, right. And, and true Christianity, you know, Christ chastised the Pharisees for their outward appearances and their constant displays of piety. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've had many of run-in with, with church boys who, who um, would, would reject me outright because I don't have those same constant displays of piety that they come to expect in their little church world, right? And, and the better Christians are the people who keep their, their, their piety inwardly and, and, and outwardly care for their race and their kinsmen and their brethren and, and do things to help preserve and, and protect that race and, and to hell with piety. I have no use for it. I mean, because mostly it leads to hypocrisy. Well, mm-hmm. wouldn't they like to see that, though, the outside of the cup clean? They don't care what the cup is filled with, though. Well, absolutely, and that was one of Christ's major um, major criticisms of the Pharisees. And, and today we have many modern Pharisees in, in our churches, and, and all of the displays of piety are for one hour a week, and, and then they run off the rest of the week, and they gamble, and they drink, and, 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 and they watch monkeys on television carry balls around, and, and they have no care for their own people. Yeah, and now just to take this uh, more toward uh, Hitler and his birthday, um, it, he ends saying, um, he says that uh, in the end, well, what was I going to say about him? All of a sudden I forgot it while I was thinking about it. Um, he, oh, yeah, he says in the end uh, he'll receive the blessings of providence. Well, people say, well, Hitler's finished. Hitler's done. You know, that's in the past. Why well, even talk about him? Well, you know, um, I'm one who uh, admires Hitler, and I think that uh, the work of Hitler is not over with. <laughs> uh, there, there is still there is such a, a residual of uh, of huge admiration for him, and uh, so on. So I think that uh, he did fight. He did fight to the end, and he is not finished. And so uh, we don't know what what will come up yet. And that's why, Bill, you're we're doing this program tonight about celebrating his 123rd birthday. That's how I see it. Well, well, absolutely, and we should seek to set the record straight because he was fighting our fight, because we shouldn't allow the Jews to pervert what National Socialist Germany was all about and who and what Adolf Hitler was. We can't allow the Jews to pervert that because by that, we lose the battle. We obscure our purpose. What we... Let the Jew off the hook for history's crimes, just like the Jew would love to pervert and, and, and seeks to corrupt everything that the Bible is about, so that he could continue to run cover for what he is, the world's old, oldest, longest-running crime ring. Mm-hmm. And, and we can't let them control the public debate and, and the public forums. And, and every time we do, we as a people, we as a race, lose and we lose badly. Well, I know I got a lot of messages uh, uh, from people uh, being grateful that there is going to be what's going to be a Hitler birthday program. Uh, they they were kind of worried that there wouldn't be anything, and so thank you, Bill, for for um, deciding on this. And I guess it was Brian's idea, right? I would say yeah. It was mostly I was it was something Bill and I had wanted to do for a while. 
we missed it, I think, last year, so we decided we would get it this year. Well, well, I have to give the credit to Brian for mentioning it. Okay, well, for thanks, some. Brian. <laughs> sure. Well, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about Hitler, and I, I think we can use this time to, you know, set the record straight and, and let people know what's what. And maybe I'm, you, I'm sure you've heard of table talk. Yes. That's one of the things I was hoping that we could get into at some point. Because okay. I've, I've, I've read a, a lot of interesting stuff about this table talk, and it seems that the English translation is taken off the French translation, which was invented by this um, Genard character, Francois Junod, or I'm butchering yes. his last name, Francois Junod, and he's just inventing quotes out of thin air and attributing them to Hitler because they don't appear in the German. That's right. I was just going to ask you when you said table talk, because I'm very, you know, wary of that, you know, which, which translation you were talking about. And what I read up on it, too, and, and the, uh, the conclusion I got from it was that the, German, uh, direct, the two German translations are okay, but this English, and the only one that we have available in English is, uh, is adulterated by this person. And, uh, and and an Englishman too was involved. In fact, it's his. Uh, the book is under his name, and uh, I can't think of it right now. But uh, and it's uh, particularly in the all the areas where Hitler was talking about Christianity. That's where he changed it, and that's why uh, this that one has Hitler being so critical and saying some kind of ugly things, uh, which really are not what he said. Mm-hmm. But a, a lot of people that try and point to this book, they, they want to try and make it that Hitler wasn't a Christian or he was a bad Christian or a fake Christian, a pseudo-Christian. He used it for political reasons. They point to this table talk, but we don't have an actual genuine English translation since all we have is an adulterated French one that the English then butchered even worse. Yes, but wouldn't you say, interestingly, wouldn't you say interestingly enough, that it, technically it is a good thing that he wasn't a good Christian? Because a good Christian would imply something pretty negative in that context, right? I mean, because these are evangelicals and Baptists saying this, right? Sure. <laughs> I mean, so, so they're actually not insulting him. They're actually saying something nice, right? I know what you're saying. What you're saying, it, it goes even further than that. They're trying to imply something further, right? Even turn him satanic or something. But in general terms, he was not a good Christian, and that's actually a good thing in the context that they're referring to it because you have to look at the accuser when you judge the accusation, right? I'd, I'd say in that sense, by most evangelical standards, then Paul would not be a good Christian since Paul said that the Jews are um, contrary to all men and they please not God. Exactly. That's, that's the point. So, I mean, in that light, then, it's desirable that these people don't like Hitler because these people are serving the Jew, and if they liked Hitler, what would that say about Hitler? So it's only, it's only natural they're going to hate Hitler. That's why the mainstream Christians do reject Hitler, because they don't understand his, his repulsion of the Jews. But they also don't understand the Bible, and they don't understand that the Jews are a race, and they don't understand what kind of race the Jews are. Well, well absolutely. They basically don't understand anything, yes. It's a it's a colossal and unprecedented ignorance. We have a worldwide ignorance, it seems. Well, well, Hitler, there's a lot of statements, and I have some of them gathered. Um, I won't read them all unless anybody wants to hear. I've got the first one is the strongest one that he did said in 1922, in which he calls himself a Christian. And I just read where he himself. This is a record a, a recorded speech 
1944, where he calls himself a deeply religious man, he's not being hypocritical. He's saying he's not a hypocrite. You know, he's not making this, not saying this for effect. He he describes himself in this way. So this whole idea that he was that he hated Christianity or that he hated this and that, uh, that he was so uh, he was kind of like Stalin or something. It's just total. It's just a bunch of propaganda. And of course, he had problems. He he didn't like the the church, the clerical part of it. Although he did um, have people there. There are a lot of people in the church at that time who enjoyed talking to him, who had talks with him, and they came away feeling very good. And and uh, he could talk to these people. Uh, but he personally, he didn't he didn't uh, go for the uh, outward show of it all, the, the outward aspects of Christianity. Well, and we can well, understand that. This is the paradox. This is the paradox of Christianity since the Reform. And, and the Reformers really didn't... You know, Martin Luther himself, he didn't wander too far from the church. He maintained the professional priesthood. He maintained a lot of the church rituals. And... and each of the mainstream Protestant sects, that they broke away from the, the Catholic Church in certain aspects, but none of them ever made a complete break. The thinking man that reads the Bible, and, and, and Christian identists would understand what I'm about to say, but mainstream Christians would never understand it because they haven't actually broken from the mainstream paradigm and sat and read their Bible. The thinking man that reads the Bible understands, as Hitler did, that the Aryan man is the pinnacle of creation. He understands, as Hitler did, that preservation of the race is the first goal of Christianity. He understands, as Hitler did, that God being the author of race, race is good and we should seek to preserve God's original creation because we being the pinnacle of God's creation, we're made in the image of God, and we want to maintain that image. He understands, as Hitler did, that the Jew is contrary to all men, as Brian just quoted Paul of Tarsus. The Jew is contrary to God. The Jew is the corrupter of God's creation. And as Hitler said, in, in safeguarding the Aryan race, he stands against the Jew. He says on page 46 of Murphy's Mein Kampf, and so I believe today that my conduct is in, in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. And standing guard against the Jew, I am defending the handiwork of the Lord. I sat in, in, in prison for 12 years, and I read all of the Hebrew and apocryphal and classical Greek literature. And I read Mein Kampf, and I read Mein Kampf last. And when I read Mein Kampf, I, Mein Kampf was like, <laughs> like something I could write. And, and I'm not saying I could write as well as Hitler, but, but I don't write bad. And, and he expressed all of my beliefs about race, my, my German people, because I'm of German stock, and, and Christianity, and, and, um, and, and the history of Germany on the continent. And, and I could agree with practically everything he wrote. And I'm like, Wow, if I lived in his time, I could have wrote this knowing what I know about the Scripture from 12 years of studying the Bible. Well, so, so the, the, real main, the, the mainstream Christian would never understand that, but the real Christian does. And, and by real Christian, I mean one who has studied 
the scripture in depth. And, and, and that's the goal, should be the goal of every real Christian if you want to purport to be able to comment on these things from a Christian viewpoint. Now, now um, John Adams, you know, a, a lot of people, the, the mainstream Christians had the same misconceptions about the founding fathers of the United States that they have about Hitler. And that's because they've read about the founding fathers from the approved reading lists of the Jews. And, and the approved reading lists, the, the approved academics, all have the founding fathers as deists. And I've busted, I could prove that Carl Van Doren, who was the most popular biographer of Benjamin Franklin, when he reproduced many of Benjamin Franklin's letters in his biography of Franklin, he purposely left out many references to Christ and Christianity. So if you read that, you would believe, oh, Franklin was a deist. He didn't believe in Christ. He wasn't a Christian. He was a deist. And, 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 and they've made these men sound like humanists and deists. And, and that's just false, because John Adams was a deeply believing Christian, but rejected the same clerisy, the, the same clerical Christianity that Adolf Hitler rejected. He rejected the outward rituals and the shows of piety. John Adams was a good Christian. You could tell it from his writing, but not from his actions. Well, the, the mainstream Christian sects, they only care about actions. What church you going to and who you're giving your money to. That's all they care about. And, Bill, you mentioned Martin Luther. I wonder how many Lutherans even know anything about Martin Luther. He wrote the Jews in their lives, and he also was once asked, how would you baptize a Jew, or how would you bring a Jew into Christianity? And Luther responded, were I to baptize a Jew, I would conduct him to a bridge over the river Elbe, tie a stone around his neck, and throw him over the side. That's what Martin Luther said when he was asked how to baptize a Jew, tie a stone around their neck and throw him in a river. And, and, and Hitler it, it, that, right? And if you told most Lutherans that today, first of all, they'd claim you were lying and that Luther never said it. And then if you showed them that Luther had actually said that and you showed them the Jews and their lies, they would probably say, well, that doesn't matter. You know, Luther's not that important. You know, I'm not a Lutheran because of Luther. My parents raised me Lutheran. Well, well, I'm sorry I took the long digression on you, Carolyn, but I only wanted to show that the same things they say about Hitler, they also say about the Founding Fathers for the same reasons. But Franklin and Adams were definitely Christians, and, and many of the others were also. Yeah, you know, yeah, you made that point, and I, you know, I, I couldn't argue against it. You know, what's so, funny, too, uh, is that a lot of people don't realize is that Adolf Hitler was uh, baptized a Catholic, and he has never been excommunicated, right? And the, thing, the reason I find that funny is because, legally speaking, right, in canon law, he is a Catholic, right? He hasn't been excommunicated. So it's a funny thing. I've used this argument before with Catholics, and I have to shut up, because if he's not excommunicated, he is technically a Catholic and a Christian, and they cannot deny him as Catholics because he has not been excommunicated. So if you ever have an argument with a Catholic, just use that. Well, has he been excommunicated? The answer is no. They have to shut up. <laughs> if you say yeah. that too often, though, eventually they might send a letter that if they had a can and they'll excommunicate him. Well, then that's fine. Then, then they'll do an official thing. But the point is they haven't, and that's what's interesting about it, right? That they, since they haven't ever excommunicated Hitler, it's an interesting, you know, piece of, of history. That, you know, that he, that, I'm sorry. That that really is interesting, Severus. Uh, you know, I just that just comes to my mind in connection with what they just recently done to his parents' grave, 
sight and taken the headstone away, which I think is just the most outrageous thing. People say, well, it's not a party member. It's not, he just isn't parents. They weren't that important to the, to the party or the movement or anything. But I, I see it differently. I think it's, it's just outrageously terrible that they did this thing and so unnecessary. And it was, of course, at the, at the urging of over a long period of time of Jews. But, and it didn't occur to me that they may take a, another step and actually uh, force the church, this new Roman Catholic uh, Jewish church, to, uh, to excommunicate Adolf Hitler in, you know, after, <laughs> after he's been dead for so long. Um, just as another example of to put him in, in the bad, in as bad a light as possible. What, what do you, anybody see anything in that that bothers them? I mean, that would be interesting. It would be funny. We can send him to the Mormons and they can baptize him after his death, right? And then maybe he becomes a Mormon. <laughs> can they excommunicate you after your death, though? Does Catholic catechism allow that? I don't know. But yeah, I, don't see, I, don't see I didn't it. know that they could t- kick people out of their grave and bury somebody else, resell it and bury somebody else on top of them either. Uh, you know? I know in the past that the Catholic Church has done that to people that they consider yes. to be heretics. They've actually yes. dug out of their graves and burned the bones or thrown them in, or in the river even. Well, you know, in Britain they're doing that. After about 50 years, if you were buried, you know, 50 years ago, they're going to open up the grave, um, probably cremate you or throw you in a river or do something with you to make way for um, a, a new body since they're running out of space for cemeteries in Britain. But there's a reason well, they use that they excuse. Yeah. There's a reason why they haven't done it, because an, ex- an official excommunication is, is not a papal decree, right? It, it actually requires a court, and it requires a whole process. And obviously it would be very embarrassing, because they would actually have to discuss what did Hitler do that is unchristian, right? They would actually have to go to the merits of the case, and that would bring so, so much bad publicity, <laughs> so much chaos. <laughs> they would be insane, right? Because you have these, these cardinals discussing what well, was, Hitler do something unchristian. This whole thing would be just so crazy. That's why they haven't even touched it. They'd also have to admit that he was a Catholic, and I'm sure most Americans probably have no idea Hitler was a Catholic. I would love to be his defense lawyer. That would be awesome, right? (laughs) That would be awesome. Okay, well, what's the problem? (laughs) That's right. Yeah, okay. So let's, yeah, we prepare a case and everything. That would be actually pretty cool. That would create such a, that would be like the, the monkey court, right? The monkey case, right? It would be like Absolutely. such a thing. It would be like more famous than Trayvon, right? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, <laughs> but let me ask you a question. I don't, I don't know if you guys uh, ever thought of, I mean, you've probably discussed this before, but one thing that I think is relevant in this discussion of Hitler is the fact that a lot of people in the white nationalist movement um, run away from Hitler, right? Politically and in conversations. In other words, they have, they have accepted the narrative the Jewish narrative about who Hitler is, and, or even even if they haven't accepted the narrative, they, they just decide to run away from him, like deny him, right? right? Deny him publicly, uh, run away from his policies, run away from any term that's associated with him, obviously to no end and to no point because they're still going to be accused of being Nazis no matter who they are, right? You can be the, the biggest anti-Nazi in the world and still be called a Nazi. You still be called uh, Hitler, right? Um, but I think it's an interesting uh, development in our movement that for political expedience, we have denied Hitler for a lot of decades recently, um, and I think it's preposterous, and I think it's even insulting, because we're basically accepting their narrative and denying him altogether. 
Well, well, that's the point I tried to make in my opening remarks, is that Christian identists deny Hitler accepting the Jewish narrative, and, and white nationalists deny Christianity accepting the Jewish narrative. That They both do it. That it it's crazy, and, 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 and it's destructive. It's self-destructive. It, it's, um, it, it's like denying Christ because the Jews don't like Christ, and Christians are going to do that next. Mainstream Christians are going to do that next. Well, it's it's a fear of the Jews. To me, it's it's an expression of fear of the Jews. And uh, when speaking about white nationalists doing it, it shows that they they have this fear of the Jews. They're afraid the Jews won't allow them to continue, you know, with their uh, with their movement. You know, everything is tolerated in supposedly by the Jews. And if you if you go too far, they won't tolerate you anymore. And so we have to be careful not to go too far. And that's that's one area where you go too far. So, so the Jews will stop selling you the horned helmets? And... Yeah, I mean, we, we really need to uh, not have fear of the Jews. Uh, but, I, you know, I understand that certain people, individuals, if, if their livelihood is at stake, which it is, they, they can't do, they can't go, they can't do that. But as a movement, we certainly, I say we, you know, I mean, this is such a scattered movement, but if we think of ourselves as a movement, white nationalism, I mean, we have to not function out of fear of the Jews. That, to me, is just that should be a kind of a basic uh, bottom line uh, uh, standard that we have. Well, well, like Adolf Hitler himself said, if, 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 if you let me quote it, because I have it right here somewhere on the front page of my website. If, okay. um, if a comrade of ours opens a Jewish newspaper in the morning and does not find himself vilified there, then he spent yesterday to no account. Mm-hmm. If you're doing something good for your white race, you should expect Jewish vilification. And if you're not getting Jewish vilification, then what Adolf Hitler's saying is that you're not doing enough. But, you know, in, 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 uh, in reality, in practice, now the people who are vilified by the Jews are those who, who, are, who don't, go all the way with it and they, they because the Jews know they're afraid of them. I really think if you're not afraid of them and there's not that much in your life that they can harm, uh, they, they'll leave you alone. Uh, they, they don't go after people. They don't go after you. Uh, they don't go after me. They probably think I'm not important enough. But, but people who are not uh, other people who just say any little thing uh, but who are trying to not uh, rise, raise the ire of the Jews they're the ones they go after the worst. Right. Yeah. And look at journalists who have to be careful how they report a story from the Middle East, and they can't portray a murderer like Baruch Goldstein who committed the, um, the massacre in Hebron. They can't, they can't come out swinging against him and denounce him as a terrorist. They couldn't use a word like terrorist because terrorist means either a white person or an Arab. But even the most mainstream Christians going to Palestine are vilified as Nazis. The most mainstream Christians yeah. here in, in New York are vilified as Nazis. The exactly. Jews know that National Socialism was Christian in its in, in its founding in, in its in its principles. That if you study the the principles of National Socialism, love your brother, care for your race, and 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 the moral principles, they're all Christian principles, and the Jews know that. They know that real Christians are Nazis, and that real Nazis are Christians. And that's why, they're, that's why those terms have become 
synonymous to the Jew. And I actually have videos on Christogenia of Jews in Palestine labeling Christians and deriding them as Nazis. And these are mainstream evangelicals. That they get they're spat on. From Nazi, you could imagine. And, and they get spat on, right? And, and they get that label simply because they're Christians. Well, I think, though, I, I should have been, I, there's another point that I didn't uh, bring in, and that probably uh, a lot of white nationalists are also afraid of fake Nazis. They, they, they're afraid of the Nazis that go out in their costumes, they call them costumes, you know, they want to wear uniforms, they want to pretend like they're the Nazis from back then, you know, and, which is ridiculous because there's no such thing now, and it's, it's silly to, to, to dress up like that and, and try to think that you're, you're, you're that. But uh, that's what they're afraid of. They don't want to be labeled with that. But I think that the fear of labels is overdone. And if you're not afraid of labels, you're going to be, you, you're not, you won't be labeled as, as much. So that's, that's my point. If you're going to stand up for what is right and true, and, and that means standing against the Jew, you're going to invite labels. And, and you better have thick skin. But because mm -hmm. if you're going to be upset, that you're slapped or if you're going to be upset that you, you receive this dirty label, well, well, then you probably should just go and, and play house somewhere and, and, and get out of the fight because you don't belong in it. You're, you're, if you're going to be pusillanimous, then you don't belong in the fight. Look at Henry Ford. You know, now there's an example. You know, we did that program about him and, and I want to talk a lot more about him in the future, but, uh, he uh, okay. He he was a Christian, very much so, and he was a, a, a right winger, or you might say, a, a, well, he liked uh, Adolf Hitler and he liked other uh, a, that type of uh, political philosophy. And he stood, he went, and he did more than you would even imagine he would do. He had all that material written, put his name on it, bought a newspaper, published it in the newspaper, put it in a book. I mean, he told the absolute truth about the Jew, and, uh, of course, they kind of got to him in the end, but yet it's out there, and uh, he, he did a great thing. Uh, they didn't destroy him. They didn't destroy what the work that he did. They haven't destroyed the book, um, and just like the protocols, you know, it's still there in spite of the fact that they uh, discourage people from reading it. And, and that's what they love to do. They love to dis disparage things in order to discourage people from investigating them for themselves. And today, yeah. though, they have the ultimate revenge against Ford. They control his company, and they control the Ford Foundation. And look what they're using the Ford Foundation for. It's leading the effort to keep our borders open and bring immigrants in. Yeah, but they, they control everything, Brian. I mean, what don't they control, you know, except uh, our individual selves? Some of us, you know, I mean, so that they that they control the Ford Foundation is probably not so surprising. There's probably no way to keep it from going in that direction once Henry Ford was gone. Not not unless you have a group of men in control of it in the first place who are absolutely racially cognizant and, and know the the threats and the dangers. And and most of us. What we think there's good Jews, we take them at face value. They appear to be nice and civil people, and, and before you know it, they, they own you. And, and they do it every time. It, it never fails. 
Well, this, this is why I think there's a, a lot of value in the idea of, or the that history is made up of great of great men. A few women in there too, I'm sure. Um, but you know, it's made up of great, outstanding, unique individuals. It's it's not the rest of the people aren't. They go along, you know. I mean, they're not the ones who move move us forward in, in our thinking, and they're not the ones who lead us. And so, you know, National Socialism had the leadership principle, which is uh, criticized often, and uh, that it's a dictatorship. But uh, you know, uh, you, you need you need a great person to lead you, and uh, then then something gets done. Henry Ford was another great leader. Uh, he wasn't a political leader, but you know, it's uh, history. Our progress is made up of these great individuals. It seems to me. Well, Mussolini once said that blood alone moves the wheels of history. There are always typical individuals in history that people rally behind, whether they're living or or, or sometimes very often, and, and sadly, those people are dead before people rally behind them, right? But but um, and, or or before they inspire a, another great individual to follow them, and and. Like Hitler was greatly inspired by Schopenhauer and and several other people, as um, Severus I think is going to mention. He was even inspired by Chamberlain, and in some degree, and, and um, we we all have our inspiration and and hope to pass that to others. And and very often, men who don't add up to much while they're living become um, great posthumously because their ideas were passed on to others. So we never know who we're going to affect down the road. Um, Adolf Hitler, uh, I believe he, he woke a lot of people up to racial cognizance, and, and he's still waking people up to racial cognizance, which is important, and to the Jewish problem, which is important. And um, he, he got his inspiration from people from from Christ all the way to Schopenhauer and Chamberlain, right? And, and he, he was a composite of the histories and, and the books that he read. And, and that's, you know, sometimes those books and, and reading those books create great men that happen to be in the right place at the right time in, in order to do those great things. And, and I believe that that's the hand of God in our history, right? And, and that's why we have John Adams and, and, and George Washington when we happen to need them. And, and that's why we have Herman and Otto the first when we happen to need them, right? And, and um, that that's, yeah, you know. Yeah, well, you know, great great uh, events and great need brings brings forth someone who answers it. And uh, so we all, uh, we, uh, most people, I think, are familiar with the idea that they say, well, World War One, Versailles Treaty created Adolf Hitler. Well, I don't I don't say that it created him, but uh, that was the uh, the starting point. Of where he felt, uh, at, because he served in World War One and after World War One, and what took place, what happened to Germany, was so horrifying to him. I mean, he felt it deeply, deeply. Uh, so that put him in that direction, and he just had what it took to focus, like most people are not able to focus, and to commit himself and devote himself to this cause. So uh, this, you know, um, I think someone like. Someone like Hitler and, and other great uh, leaders in, in world history, they yes, they uh, they read they they learn from others who came before them, and but it kind of sparks something in them this great uh, this connection in them to great ideas or to 
to the, the what Hitler called providence or God. You know, it can it, it wakes them up in such a way, and then it stirs it stirs something in them. And I think so often it's this connection. They're often they're like inspired. I don't want to get too mystical, but these people uh, are always inspired by high and beautiful ideas. So uh, you know, uh, yeah, they're well, they're the one. You know, for Ty, I, I think it definitely gave him purpose and. He pointed out in his speech in November 8th of 1940 that the people who marched with him in 1923 and those who died had no real hope of victory in their lifetime anyway. They didn't conceive that they were going to win the next day, the next week, the next month, even the next year, the next decade. They simply knew that one day things would be better. And that's, I think, why, why Hitler entered politics and started his struggle. He wasn't expecting the win in 1921 or 22 or even 23. He just knew that someday things would be better and they would wipe away the shame of Versailles. Yes, he didn't. Of course, he didn't know. And um, he uh, he just started in and he knew that he, he was a nobody and he knew that he had nothing going for him. He had no money he had no followers except for a few. He had he had nothing. Uh, it looked like, like he was he would never get anywhere. And uh, but he persevered anyway, even if he didn't get anywhere. And that's a good lesson for us, because uh, and what you just said, Brian, that because even though we might say today, well, we're, uh, we things look so bad. Many people say, well, it's all over. There's you know, there's it's hopeless. Uh, but uh, you don't give up. You just persevere until things change. And uh, we don't know what Providence is going to do. And in, in, in um, 1940, he was speaking about the French and the British and the ongoing war, and he's talking about the propaganda aimed at Germany, and he points out, he said, I finished off these people as a lonely, unknown man who gathered but a handful of people about him. Throughout 15 years, I finished off these people, and today Germany is the greatest world power. He was referring to the, the various anti-Germans, whether they were domestic or foreign, and he's pointing out letting people know that they've already crushed domestic opposition to the um, resurgence of Germany, and it's a simple matter to um, crush the foreign opposition to the resurgence of Germany. And essentially, though, I mean, Hitler really did seemingly come out of nowhere. He was uh, basically an unknown corporal. Uh, he was a nobody compared to Hindenburg and Ludendorff and all these other bigwigs and politicians and Prussian noblemen, yet he did what none of them could. He put Germany back on the right track. Yeah, because he had it. Whatever it is, he had it. There are people all throughout history It seemingly came out of nowhere. Because the general public weren't cognizant of them, or, or the Jews in, in Berlin, the newspaper offices, weren't cognizant of him until he reached a certain point in popularity. But that doesn't mean that he didn't put 10 or 15 years into building his movement before he came into their purview. Absolutely. Not only that, yeah, not only that, but a lot of people seem to have a, a very close understanding of the background of where a lot of these movements came from and where Hitler came from. And that's why I do encourage people to study those that Hitler considered to be his Hitler. Do you know what I mean? In other words, Hitler didn't come out of nowhere and he became just Hitler, the coolest guy on the planet, right? He had people that he felt were his inspiration. Dietrich Eckhart comes to mind as one of the most important people in his life that basically altered his life, right? Um, and, and it had a huge influence on him. I mean, he dedicates Mein Kampf to him, right? Um, he did SS divisions to his name, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, stadiums, right? Um, and this person had a huge influence on him. So studying these people matters, right? 
um, Houston Stewart Chamberlain, who um, who uh, Bill just mentioned, um, was presented to him by uh, Rosenberg, right? And Alfred Rosenberg presents uh, Dietrich Eckhart. Alfred Rosenberg, it's, uh, I'm sorry, Eckhart uh, shows him, uh, tells Hitler, "Look, this is my uh, my protege, Alfred Rosenberg." Alfred Rosenberg presents Chamberlain to Hitler, and it changes Hitler's viewpoint on a lot of these issues, including the whole Aryan connection. To, uh, to Jesus, actually, because that's the first time he really encounters this argument. And I do encourage people to read Chamberlain. It's, I know it's a thick read, right? It's like two volumes. It's huge, right? But um, it is a great read because it gives you a perspective on where Hitler came from. And again, that these details prove that Hitler didn't come from nowhere. Just like he didn't invent the term National Socialism. He didn't invent the philosophy of National Socialism. These things came from before, right? But he did some alterations to it based on these uh, influences that created something new and the power of his personality was able to uh, catapult it to uh, fame. But it's good to study yellow socialism. It's good to study national syndicalism, which is where national socialism comes. And study the men who started these movements, etc. I mean, these, these things are important to understand. Hitler, if we're celebrating him, we should celebrate the people that he celebrated as well. And uh, some of these people were the people that inspired him. What is the two-volume book you are recommending? I didn't catch that. Chamberlain. It's, uh, it's Chamberlain. Foundations Chamberlain. of the 19th Century. Foundations of the 19th Century. A spectacular book uh, in two volumes. Um, and there's, it's a, it's oh, a, yeah. A, yeah. yeah. Well, it's well, a spectacular you know, book. In Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler explains how he started his party with seven members. He was member number seven but when he was exactly. invited. He was invited to attend these meetings of this new party. He was member number seven. He quickly rose to lead the party. He renamed it. He remodeled it in, in his own way. But he grew it up from seven people. They rented halls. They put up posters. They had meetings. And, and they gathered more and more people to him until he could, he, he could rent a stadium instead of a hall, right, or a theater instead of a hall. We, yeah. we know the Beer Hall Putsch. The Beer Hall Putsch is a, a fact of history. There was Adolf Hitler sticking his neck out on the street before anybody heard about him involved in the Beer Hall Putsch, and, and he ended up in jail for it, right? And some of his men ended up dead, and they tried to disgrace him over that. It, it's, well, his detractors... And, and some of the clowns, and, and they're just crazy. Well, well um, the, these things, you, you know, he didn't come out from nowhere. He tells us the story. We know the history of it. We have the pictures from the Beer Hall Putsch. I, I mean, I've seen pictures of, of, of you know, photographs from, from that mm -hmm. time. And, and these things exist. Hitler didn't come from nowhere. It, it's the, that, that's a Jewish trick pulled on the minds of, of the ignorant who, who haven't looked into these things, and, and that's most people, and they happen to fall for it. Well, I, I think, Bill, that they mean that, that he was a nobody, and he said that himself. He had no power base. You know, he had no base at all well, well, he, when he started. So uh, that makes him pretty special. Well, right. It does make him special. There's no doubt he had charisma. He, he was loved when he spoke. He had ideas. The man did his homework. He did his time studying those books, he, like Schopenhauer and, and, and all of the other influences he had. He did his time. When everybody else was out playing in the theaters, Adolf Hitler was home reading. And he did his time, and he had the charisma to take that knowledge to the street and, and, and gain followers 
because he had good ideas. And he spoke the truth. I think that's something we should address as well, that seldom did he speak from prepared notes or a pre-written speech. He just stood up and would speak for three or four hours, and because he told the truth, he didn't really need prepared notes. He spoke from the heart. Well, well, right. When you have the, the um, when you have accumulated the knowledge, and you could just talk, and 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 as long as you're saying things that you believe to be true, yeah, you could carry on for a long time. I guess you can. I I I, uh, I couldn't do that. I don't think uh, I can talk for a long time once I get started. But I don't know how <laughs> how good it is. Uh, but uh, he, he it was like uh, yes, he he. Um, he internalized so much of what he read. Supposedly, he had a fantastic memory, and he could quote from things. I mean, he read enormously, and yet he could quote from these books, uh, naval statistics and all kinds of things along with other things. And and he wasn't a big fan of Schopenhauer. All through the war, he carried that, that little uh, Schopenhauer uh, book uh, in his breast pocket or something like that. Um, all through World War One, and uh, so I would like to hear from Severus what he has to say about uh, Hitler and Schopenhauer. But uh, when when he started to speak, it's like he just kind of plugged in, and as he went along, he just got it just came out from him. It's not, I don't mean that it was some, somebody else he was channeling, but in in the sense he was connected to to him his own self, and he could he just went on and on because he was. He, he, he was just absolutely rich in ideas and and thoughts and and you know one of the things they try to say is that oh he copied everybody or he didn't have any ideas he just he just had somebody gave him gave it all to him and all these things are just total lies. Thoughts uh, have original ideas. I don't have one original idea. They all came from the <laughs> reading of the Bible uh, of the Greek classics. Uh, of of the, the the more recent histories, none of my ideas are original. None of us have original ideas. That's another Jewish trick. Well, what was it? Jesus said, "I bring nothing new." Right, right. We we what we read a wealth of information, and when we read a wealth of information, our mind stores what we think is the most useful, and we use that in our daily conversation. Well, one thing about Hitler I'll throw in because it just came to my mind is that all throughout his life, everyone who knew him, everyone said the same thing that he was just, they were just mesmerized when he started talking. I don't care, men, women, high, low, everybody said, says this, that when they would go into have a conversation with him and they would have a clear idea of, of their own points that they wanted to get across, and Hitler would listen to them, and then he would start talking. And if he didn't agree with their ideas and he had different ideas, they all said by the time he was done, uh, they totally agreed with him. I mean, he, he just, uh, you know, he just could put it together. Some people will try to say, well, he was the, you know, this was the devil, you know, these people were, were truly, uh, you know, in a spell, put in a spell by him. But this is, well, this is not the case. Love to say. <laughs> yeah, they do. But it's not the case. It's just that he, he was just, he just had this amazing ability to put across his own view, and people were totally convinced by it. Now, some of them, they said when they, uh, you know, a, a couple few days later, they might kind of revert to what they thought uh, to some degree. But uh, at the time, they were just totally under, so he, he was extremely persuasive. Um, and, uh, well, I don't really want to make this this uh, connection uh 
it's too too close, but um, that that's the same way with Jesus Christ. Uh, when he spoke, people were just totally mesmerized and convinced of what he well, said. He said that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, and I would say that we might look at Hitler as a shepherd for the nation of Germany, since at the time they were being led by wolves. They were being led to their ruin by wolves, and Hitler came teaching the truth, and he offered the nation, you know, redemption on a national level, not a um, spirit. We're not talking about eternal salvation or anything like that. We're talking about the resurgence and the resurrection of Germany as a political power and an economic yeah. power. He brought them back from the brink of ruin. Absolutely true. He he led that nation back. He he did redeem that nation from the 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 um the sewer of of the Weimar Republic, and it was a moral sewer created by the Jews in the ashes of World War One. The Jews took advantage of, of the people and 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 the government that that you know Max Baden and some of the other aristocrats just sold it out, and the Jews took advantage of the situation. And, and tried to build what they did here in the 1950s and 60s. They tried to build a, a, a cesspool of a nation based on immorality and every perversion. And, and Adolf Hitler pulled his race, his nation, out of that. And they've done that here in the U.S., and no one's been here to pull us out. Well, well absolutely. I mean, we've had no. people that have attempted, you know, George Lincoln Rockwell, and people vilified him, and they didn't rally around him. Right. I believe that the, the major advantage that Adolf Hitler had and why there won't be another Adolf Hitler so easily is because Germany did not have television yet. Hmm. People were still going out to theaters. And, and he was, all of his original speeches, when he was struggling to build that party, he, he was putting up billboards in, in certain neighborhoods where, where um, they knew that they could be effective and, and they were putting up billboards and renting theater space or renting beer halls and doing their speaking there. And because there was no television yet, people were looking to go out to places like that at night. People were still engaged in, in, in their community and in politics at that level, where today people are disconnected to that and they're only connected to this banned television. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah, that television... And suburban living has, uh, they say, uh, cut into um, uh, community, community life, and that's so true. We know that we're all we're all in our own uh, inside in our own world, pretty much. So then whoever's running the communities, uh, we don't even know. <laughs> Harvard yeah. just completed a long study. The more diverse a community is, the less people get involved in civic, you know, organizations. The less they can contribute. Uh, contribute to charitable organizations, the less connected they feel to their neighbors, the less they know about their neighbors, and the um, more depressed they are, the more prone to psychological problems or anxiety and depression. They said the yeah, more Kevin, diverse a community, the less connected the people feel. Yeah, Kevin McDonald published that 20 years ago. <laughs> so I guess they ripped him off. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to point out, too, that Hitler also had a few other things working for him. You know, his country was 99% German slash white, only 1%, you know, alien slash Jewish. America, we're maybe 60% white, and that's comprised of every imaginable white ethnicity, so we really can't make an appeal to any sort of shared ethnic heritage. I mean, we have a 
generally shared racial heritage, but we have a lot of people that are first generation or second generation white immigrants. They may speak a different language from English. They they may feel more connected to the the government that gave them their citizenship. They don't have a the um, Western common law tradition or the Anglo-Saxon heritage of the the founding fathers. Maybe they're from Eastern or Southern Europe, and they they just well, don't quite fit in. That was how the Jews first divided this country by bringing in all of the Southern and Eastern Europeans. Now, now I don't despise Eastern Europeans or Southern Europeans just because they're from Southern or Eastern Europe, Certainly. but they, didn't, that they were mostly Catholic, where the original stock of the nation was mostly Protestant. Mm-hmm. They, didn't have, they didn't have the shared common history in the Revolution, the War of 1812, the, and, and the Civil War. They didn't have that, so they didn't have that common bind that, that people had, and, and, and there were several common binds, I understand, because the South in the Civil War had a different experience than the North, but still, all the people of the South were proud of and shared a common heritage, and all the people of the North were proud of and shared a common heritage, and then you have these Catholic, Eastern, and Southern Europeans without that experience, even though they were still white, coming into the nation, it created diverse interest groups among whites and balkanized the nation and the electorate at an early time. I mean, this is the 1880s and 1890s that this began. And they had and a different vision you, of Bill. what the nation I agree. should be. Uh, and all, all the, this, is the, this is the plan that they're, ta- that they're carrying out now. And look at Europe now. They're, they're uh, bringing in for, uh, for foreigners and dark-skinned people into uh, all the European nations, as you know, the reason. So there can be no, uh, no, there can be no national movement anymore. You know, they don't want any national movements like Hitler succeeded in in creating uh, in Germany yeah, in the twenties. Well, right. You know, and there's great and here has far more obstacles than Adolf Hitler did. That that's not that that's not to make excuses for anyone, but that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Of course, there's. It is. There's, it is. So, oh, go ahead. No, no. What I was gonna say is, there's also another element here, which, uh, which is the the egalitarian, individualistic element of American culture that comes from enlightenment enlightenment values that came from the the founding fathers themselves, right? Which themselves come from from a particular type of France, a, a, a particular type of French philosophy that Europeans kind of stepped away from in their own route, uh, independent of Americans. And I think that, that the nature of individualism, the nature of egalitarian American views of the world are different than the continental European views of the world, and I think that matters a lot. And also the nature of national socialism. A lot of people don't talk about the nature of national socialism in a lot of white nationalist groups because they inherently do not understand them, right? Because a lot of people have this view that National Socialism sprang from the ground like magic. Hitler invented it. And it just basically means that we're Germans, we're white, and we share with each other, right? And that's it. Without understanding the Schopenhauers, without understanding the, 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 the background, right? The yellow socialism, national syndicalism, the national Bolshevism, all these views existed in Germany and existed prior to Hitler, right? And, and Hitler fed from these uh, movements which a lot of them were intrinsically leftist movement, right? What we would call leftist, right? Because they're, they're uh, uh, labor union type movements, uh, socialist movements, right? Not Marxist, but socialist, right? 
Um, and then you had a lot of communists, you had a lot of Marxists, Leninists, etc. And the, all these elements influenced the history of National Socialism because when Hitler was speaking, he was not speaking to a, a radical idea, right? It's not like he was speaking, uh, you know, Chinese. He was referring to things that even a Marxist communist understood, and that's why a lot of Marxist communists converted to National Socialism, um, because he was not speaking to them in a crazy fashion, right? He was, he was basically speaking to them in the same language. He was eliminating elements of Marxism that were universalist and Jewish, and he was basically refurbishing the movement to its original context, to the original socialism, um, which was ethnic nationalist, and it was uh, a lot closer to labor union type of syndicalism, which is basically what the Falange was in Spain and what fascism was in Italy, right? But there is a background. Um, and and if, you, if people don't understand it, they will see Hitler as if he was like, I see a lot of people using the term third position. Um, but the truth is, Hitler was not really that awkward in that moment, right? Actually, he didn't even want to use the term national socialism. He wanted to call it social revolutionary. Um, and he was voted down. Right? He was voted down for social revolutionary, and he ended up with national socialism, which is a French term, right, invented by French, by French philosophers, right, um, that were also called yellow socialists. Right? That's really the background of all this thing. Now, if you don't mind, if, uh, regarding Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer influenced Hitler in a weird way because Schopenhauer was obsessed with the idea of will, right, the, the triumph of the will, this whole concept of the will. Of course, mm -hmm. Nietzsche was more obsessed with the willpower in a, in a more positive way, but Schopenhauer was obsessed with will and how humans use their will to basically determine what they wanted in life, right? Their emotions, uh, the physical achievements, etc. And, of course, Schopenhauer was, was pretty negative because Schopenhauer believed that you couldn't satisfy yourself ever, right? It's like the end of – you can never be satisfied. And, therefore, you, you should be somewhat of an ascetic, right? You should somehow hide in a mountain, not do anything, somewhat kind of like a Buddhist, right? And that was his perspective. And Hitler really didn't agree with this, but Hitler was influenced by the idea of, uh, well, I mean, I, I, I say Hitler didn't agree with it because what he did doesn't seem to be related to this, right? But, but the idea of will and how will influences reality was, uh, was basically pure Schopenhauer. But I think he, he passed Schopenhauer, right? And he was deeply influenced by Eckhart because Eckhart was, uh, he, he basically took Schopenhauer and turned him upside down and created a more natural positive philosophy out of it, that you could actually create real things with will that were positive, um, and you could achieve things with will. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's interesting, right? I, I think that's really the background of National Socialism. If you ignore it, then you do think it's like magic, right? Oh, magically, National Socialism became popular because he was some evil hypnotist. But the truth is, this guy was speaking their language. They knew what the hell he was talking about. And, and he was not out of the political mainstream. He was talking within a context of labor unions, within a context of work, within a context of the state that was relevant at that time. Very good. That's very good. Well, well let me bring up that. That is good, Korskin. Well, well, Severus, and I'm glad you clarified that. I, I cited Schopenhauer because there's several quotes from Schopenhauer yeah. in my comp, right? Yeah. The, the, um, let, let me talk about Hitler and the basis of natural so, national socialism. And, and I've done this before on podcasts. This is only six short quotes, right? And three of them from Mein Kampf and, and three of them from the Bible. And this is why I say that the basis for national socialism is found in Christianity. It's the foundation. 
to, to build this foundation, you can't be a make-believe Christian. The Jews don't really understand this foundation, right? That they really uh, okay, and, and let, let me just find my quotes here because I lost. Oh, oh I'm on the wrong page. I had to get to my website. Oh, okay, from page 146 of Mein Kampf, the right to personal freedom comes second in importance to the duty of maintaining the race. Okay, from page 94 of Mein Kampf, the sacrifice of the individual existence is necessary in order to assure the conservation of the race. Hence it is that the most essential condition for the establishment and maintenance of a state and, and the nation, the state is you know, a, a um, organism of the nation and not or the other way around, is a certain feeling of solidarity wounded in an identity of character and race and in a resolute readiness to defend these at all costs. In, in page 168 of Mein Kampf, the readiness to sacrifice one's personal work and if necessary, even one's life for others shows its most highly developed form in the Aryan race. And, and now to go to the scripture, to go to the Bible and quote John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, sacrifices his own self for the race. Matthew 10:38 and 39, and he that takes not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. He that finds his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. What did he do? He gave his life for his people. What should we do to follow him? Sacrifice our lives for our people. Does that mean we have to die for our people? If necessary, but not rashly, we live to help our race first. That's Christian. Mm-hmm. Matthew um, chapter 23, neither be called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. We should always seek to serve our racial brethren. And Christianity is racist. Christ said, I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The entire book is written for those lost sheep of the house of Israel. I mean, talking about who they are, we know that they're the people of Europe. That's a different topic. But, but basically, that's the example that Christ set. That's the example that Hitler lays forth for National Socialism in Mein Kampf. You may find that in the 19th century socialist philosophers. But they had to get it from somewhere. It's the foundation of true Christianity. If we don't look out for our brethren first, it's, Christ said, he who loves me loves his brother. He who loves me does my commandments. You read those Ten Commandments, there's no way you could break them if you love your brother. Well, it's interesting you know, bring that up. The foundation, you say it's the foundation of Christianity, and at the same time, it's the foundation of the Aryan race. Right, absolutely. Isn't it? I mean, this is why we're this way. And this is why it's been, it's been diverted to caring for everybody in the world, which is absolutely. the big mistake that we've made. And the concept of stardom, you know, Severus mentioned it. It, it may have come from the Enlightenment, and the, the founders may have had it to some degree, but it's really it, it's promoted by the Jews everywhere because... 
it causes us to separate ourselves from one another. The elevation of the ego above the nation causes us to lose that care for one another that should be ingrained into us. Well, Bill, I'd like to mention something here. On this website I'm looking at, it's, a, it's an atheist perspective website, and they're trying to show that Hitler was a Christian because obviously they don't want him being an atheist, so they have a bit of an agenda. But they, they cite their sources, and it says, In Hitler, Memoirs of a Confidant, Hitler reveals himself through conversations to colleagues from a conference on economic policy. In it, Hitler is reported to have spoken glowingly about, quote, raising the treasures of the living Christ, the persecution of the true Christians and the sanctimonious churches that have placed themselves between God and man and to turn away from the anti-Christian smug individualism of the past, and quote, to educate the youth in particular in the spirit of those of Christ's words that we must interpret anew. Love one another, be considerate of your fellow man, remember that each of you is not alone a creature of God, but that you all are brothers, end quote. And that's from Turner, chapter 23. Is that yeah. That, yeah, well, this is, this is actually uh, Otto Wagner who wrote that. that those are his, his memoirs, and this mm-hmm. Turner is another one of these editors who put it together. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, but that uh, Wagner has a, a few chapters in that book. I read that book, and it's a, it's a great book. I would recommend it to everybody, Memoirs of a Confidant. Um, and uh, he... He has quite. He's got a few chapters where Hitler's talking about uh, uh, Christianity and religion, and it's really, really interesting. And it uh, he, now this is all filtered through Wagner, who was very much a socialist, and he wasn't that much of a Christian. But uh, so he, but he was. I think he was trying to. He had a good recall, and he was writing what he remembered, and. And he, uh, these, this, that quote was taken from there. And I said that on my, uh, on that program I did, Bill, on your uh, Saturday, Christian Saturday, the, on uh, uh, the Good Society, the the more recent one. I read two uh, quotes from that book, in which Hitler was talking about uh, about Christ and and uh, and Christianity in a very very favorable way, uh, but not for uh, the church uh, clerics not the clerical church. Well, well, right, because the clerical church, it really is not Christianity at all. Mm-hmm. And, and I could show, I could prove beyond all, beyond all doubt from the pages of the New Testament that Christianity respects property rights but encourages a voluntary socialism. However, that voluntary socialism can only justly be extended to your racial kindred who are of good moral standing. And, and the Third Reich was full of, was full of uh, voluntary socialism. Well, I mean, mostly that's what it was. And the, and the, the uh, leaders, including Hitler himself, were, were, went all out to uh, back up all this stuff, these programs, for the Germans to contribute to help the poorer ones, particularly in the beginning of the Third Reich, when they were still struggling so much. Um, and, and it worked, you know, it worked. It was all about uh, helping one another, helping other Germans. Well, well I have a, um, yeah, you know, Hitler was anti-handout, and so was Paul of Tarsus. Paul of Tarsus explicitly said, in, and I think it's in 2 Thessalonians, he who does not work does not eat. Well, it's mm-hmm. so simple. 
I just wanted to um, interject real quick and point out that there was a book in the 30s and 40s in Germany. The first edition came out, I believe, in the uh, mid-30s called The Land Without a Heart, Das Land ohne Herz, by Alfred Wolschlager. And he talks about his, um, he spent about 10 years in America. And he said, for what was gone with the wind after the Civil War was the old America in which people were judged by their human worth and their real value, not by their fortune or bank account. And he talks about how um, disgusting Jewish capitalism has taken over America and it's destroyed the, um, the old Christian work ethic and that there's no dignity anymore and people just work, 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 work. They work until they drop dead and then the Jews replace them with a new worker who takes over and does the same thing and that... He even points out that in, at the height of the Depression, men would not return to the barracks and go to sleep. They would stay in the field because they were afraid that somebody would take their job for, you know, a dime an hour less or a dime a day less. He said that they would work for, you know, 30 cents or 40 cents a day, and they would just sleep in the field and resume working in the morning, and that there was no dignity at all. Well, well yeah, you know, there is no dignity to Jewish capitalism, period. Nope. It, it's Jewish capitalism is a ravenous beast. And, and it's the only beast we know, so we think it's a good beast, because the only alternative that we, what we understand through the Jewish media, it is absolute Bolshevism, right? I, I mean, wh where's the alternative? That the um, fascism. fascism. <laughs> I'm not entirely educated, and maybe Severus can can fill us in on Mussolini's fascism. I know it's corporate fascism it's called, but Mussolini's ideal of a corporation is not what our idea of a corporation is. It's a different use of the word. But but fascism is the reaction to Jewish capitalism. Fascism was the backlash against Jewish capitalism. It was the protecting of the 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 resources and the labor of white Christian Europe against Jewish capitalism. Absolutely. And recently I've read a bit of um, Giovanni Gentile, Origins and Doctrines of Fascism, and he declares that the foundation of fascism is liberty for the individual, liberty for the nation, and respect for the private property rights of every individual citizen in the nation, and that absent private property and liberty, there can be no fascism. Severus, that is like that, yeah, that is true. Uh, if, if you don't mind, I would like to weave something into this 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 piece because I think you you guys may find it interesting. Sure. That, he, there's a man called Charles Marat, right? He was a Frenchman, uh, born in 1868. This man is, was a, a Catholic and a monarchist. Now, the reason this guy is important is because this guy invented the term and the philosophy of national syndicalism. Okay, uh, he coined the phrase, etc. After national syndicalism, the term yellow socialism came, which was also uh, founded by another Frenchman, uh, Pierre Bietri. He invented this term to basically distinguish himself from what people called red socialism, which eventually became Marxism, before Marx, because Marx just basically stole all these ideas and made it his own, right? But the reason Charles Marat matters is because we're talking about a Catholic monarchist who believed he wanted to turn Christian philosophy into a secular philosophy because he believed that since the, the, industri the, the Industrial Revolution, right, since modernity was doing a shift from uh, a monarchy and spirituality and a lot of these values that he valued because he was a classicist, right, um, he had to then make those values into something secular so they could still sustain the nation even though they would have a different name. 
So he's the one that starts promoting the idea of uh, syndicalism, of trade unions, of, of the values of socialism, which at that time meant what we have already discussed, right? Um, the values of, um, of uh, workers' rights within the context of, of an industrial society, uh, the idea of corporatism, which actually began at that time, which was the idea of uh, uh, members of a, of a factory, uh, workers in a factory, themselves forming syndicate, uh, uh, a syndicate and then working with the owner of the, of the factory or with uh, the one who's administering the, the factory to uh, reach decisions and to basically decide how to create products, etc. But the reason this matters is because national syndicalism is the father of Spanish national syndicalism, which was the Falange. Falange is basically a national syndicalist movement. Their flag is the national syndicalist flag, right, which is red and black, um, crossed in the middle, which is also the flag of the anarcho-syndicalists, which are basically a version of national syndicalism, but it's actually an anarchist version of it. But they're all connected. And fascism is basically a, 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 the son of the Charles Marat and yellow socialism in France, and it, and they, it basically tells you straight up, this is where we got it from, and we're going to use their same symbols, their flags, their colors, and we're going to use their strategy politically. And all this had a major influence in Spain and Italy and Portugal to, to some level, um, and Austria, right? Because in Austria you have the Austrian National Socialists, which was basically a yellow socialist branch of philosophy that came from France. But what's interesting is that the, the, the source of this did not come from, uh, from the victim class, right? It didn't come from the Enlightenment type of victim class because Charles Marat wrote books specifically criticizing Romanticism, right? That, that movement of Romanticism. And Romanticism was the idea that you could rationalize nature. And he hated this because he thought that in the moment that you can rationalize nature, you can turn nature into whatever the hell you want, and therefore you can distort it, alter it, and mutate it into a freak, right? Um, and this matters to us because that's exactly what national socialism is. It's, a, it's an acceptance of nature, but without rationalizing for our benefit, but accepting it as it is. Um, so this battle yeah. matters, you know, <laughs> for that reason. You know, there's a um, there's a quote, Severus, that 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 agrees very much with what you said about syndicalism and and the attempts that they tried to make to make labor and and capital have more equity between them, right? And and um, the quote is in the the Epistle of James, and and it's not too long. I'm going to read it, and it James is chastising the wealthy, right? And he says, come on now, those who are wealthy, weep, crying out upon your coming hardships. And in other words, James is intoning that those who are wealthy in this life will be punished in the next. Your wealth is putrefied and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion shall be a testimony to you and it shall eat your flesh as fire. In other words, the wealth that you have now is not going to do you any good in, in the future or in the judgment. You have saved up for the last days. And then he makes an interesting statement. Behold, the wages of the laborers reaping your fields, which have been withheld by you, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have entered into the ears of the Lord of Armies. And, and the idea behind that being expressed is that if you are a wealthy man, that you have abused your capital and not taken care of those people who are in your employment. 
you haven't paid them enough. And that's in, in the Old Testament system and in the feudal system that, that there were limits as, you know, natural limits built into the system as to how much a man could profit by capital, by being the proprietor. And those limits were removed when, when the Jews broke the feudal system and, and, and we have the Jewish capitalist system what, where the Jew is always the proprietor, those limits were all removed and labor became oppressed. Well, you know, Marxism essentially dehumanizes and devalues labor. I've read Marx, and Marx argues that labor should be seen as just another commodity free to move across the borders of any nation and go anywhere, and that labor is just a commodity. He's dehumanizing and depersonifying labor. It's no longer a person. It's no longer an individual with dreams, ambitions, and goals, and a hope for a better future. Now labor is just a, a cog in the machine, and when the cog breaks, you, you move in a new commodity, labor, from another country. So yes. Marx really holds labor in scorn. Yes, not only that, but he's actually destroying labor because he is an internationalist. Mm-hmm. And internationalism is, is anathema to labor unions, because if you're an internationalist, that means that labor can move, right? Which is what happens now. Ironically, that's what we have in the United States, right? We have uh, internationalist views of labor, and that's why you can go to China and hire 100,000 people to do the, the same labor, right? A, sure. true labor, a true labor movement is nationalist because it protects your workers, right? And that's why the original socialism was protective. It was nationalist for that reason. Marx takes that concept makes it, like you said correctly, makes it into commodity, and then he internationalizes the movement. That's why he had a huge reaction in, the, in, the, in, in the Russia with national Bolshevism, which was a huge influence on national socialism too, because you had people in Bolshevism, which is a complete different type of socialism itself. It's, it's actually somewhat independent of Marxism in its own right. And national Bolshevism basically said, are you people crazy? How can we be internationalists? We're going, to be, we're going to go broke because you could just go to Indonesia and kill us, right? So uh, Marx is basically uh, utilizing the, the term socialism, utilizing the concept of unions, utilizing the concept of labor to, inter, uh, to create an international uh, proletariat dictatorship, which is really its objective. Well, Mussolini said that only the bourgeois can afford internationalism. The working classes are hopelessly bound to their native shores. And Hitler said, too, that the, the Volk look to the fatherland and the possibilities of life and a better life that are offered by the state and the nation and that they're not interested in internationalism because internationalism is for the Jews and the bourgeois. Well, well here's one facet of fascism, if, if you don't mind. And this is from Mein Kampf, and it's from page 93. And, and Hitler is drawing the distinction between his view of the state as being an organism of the people and the Jews' view of the state as being an economic organism, right? And Hitler says that the triumphant progress of technical science in Germany and the marvelous development of German industries and commerce led us to forget that a powerful state had been the necessary prerequisite of that success. In other words, the state had to protect the, the people and allow that to incubate, right? On the contrary, certain circles went so even so far as to give vent to the theory that the state owed its very existence to these phenomena, that it was above all an economic institution and should be constituted in accordance with economic interests. Therefore, it was held that the state was dependent on the economic structure. This condition of things looked 
was looked upon and glorified as the soundest and most normal arrangement. Now, the truth is that the state in itself has nothing whatsoever to do with any definite economic concept or definite economic development. It does not arise from a compact made between contracting parties within a certain delimited territory for the purpose of serving economic ends. That's the Jewish idea of the state, and Hitler is deriding it. The state is a community of living beings who have kindred physical and spiritual natures. This is the real state, right? Organized for the purpose of assuring the conservation of their own kind and to help towards fulfilling those ends, which... Providence has assigned to that particular race or racial branch. Therein and therein alone lie the purpose and meaning of a state. And that's, the, you know, the need for fascism is that the nation state, the race, may retain the intellectual property it produces in the hands of the people. A fascist government makes sure that if you make a cool invention and we can build it, that China does not end up with the plans. Mm -hmm. The capitalists, they feed off of white inventiveness, and then they take all those machines, these Jew bastards have taken all of our machines and all of the wonderful things that our race has created and moved them to China in the name of corporate capitalism that was really a hijacking of our intellectual output. They hijacked it and gave it to these yellow people to use against us. And Bill, along with the idea of the idea of the state that Hitler has, I'd like to just read from page 63 here. The authority of the state can never be an end in itself, for if that were so, any kind of tyranny would be inviolable and sacred. If a government uses the instruments of power in its hands for the purpose of leading a people to ruin, then rebellion is not only the right but also the duty of every individual citizen. Now, if I didn't tell you that that quote came from Hitler, you might think it's Thomas Jefferson writing this. Absolutely. And I tell you, if yes, Hitler you had been around in 1775, 1776, he would have signed the Declaration of Independence if he had been asked to. Well, well, he, was, he, was always saying, he was always saying in his uh, big uh, rallies that uh, the state is not the government, the state is the vote, the state is the people, and yet uh, it's, it's the enemies of, of Hitler, who are so numerous, um, always want to project him as someone who wanted this powerful state at the expense of the people, and the people were all slaves. And that was never, ever uh, his philosophy or what he was, what, or, or what he created. Right. And, and that was the philosophy the founders, Brian, pointed out, that the government only, uh, only obtained power from the people. All of its power came from the people. The people were the state. Well, in one of his speeches, Hitler even said, I am nobody. I am merely the speaker for the, right of the rights and the freedoms of the German Volk. That's what he yes, told his he audience. Always made sure, he always made sure, Brian, that, that he was... Um, that he had the support of the people. He said he ruled because he had the support of the people. And as long as he continued to have the support of the people, he continued to be the legitimate ruler. And uh, this is how he saw it, and this is how it was. Uh, and yeah. sometimes that's a different subject, but... Well, well Severus, Severus in, in, return, in, in, in returning to the topic we were on a few minutes ago, Severus raised an interesting point in, in saying that the labor union, a real strong labor union, would protect the interests of its workers, and that's why it has to be nationalist. And I remember in the 1970s, 
and, and in the Reagan years, the labor unions were always in the news. They were always in the and and now mm-hmm. they're not in the news because they moved all the industry to China. I haven't <laughs> seen a labor in the news in, in the news in twenty years. And maybe, yeah. maybe the local government, you know, like the cops are, are upset about something or the garbage men go on strike. But I mean a real labor union, an industrial labor union, when's the last time we've seen one in the news? They've basically made no, themselves never. irrelevant. They're gone. It's crazy. They're gone. Well, they, 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 were, they, they jumped on board with open borders, and they've basically made themselves irrelevant now. They've Absolutely. assured their own extinction. Well, I mean, I mean that is actually the difference. With and I've, I've I've had this discussion before with Bill, that the difference between Bolshevism, socialism, and Marxism are actually pretty different. But most people join them together because Hitler was a true socialist in the sense that he didn't believe in the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is the Marxist view of economy, right? Because the dictatorship of the proletariat it, it requires that. It requires that a, a particular a manager, let's say of a factory, remains <laughs> to manage the factory, right? But even if the manager stays there, the workers are basically dictators, right? They dictate to the manager what to do, and they dictate everything in that society in a similar term, right? I'm just using a factory as an example. Um, socialism did not believe in this. Socialism believed that the workers had rights, but the manager also had rights, and that the abilities of the manager were different than the abilities of the workers, and these differences had to be respected and recognized, which is, uh, it's still socialism because it recognizes that everyone works in, uh, together like a machine, right, and everyone has to do a part. Um, Bolshevism went even further because Bolshevism believed in the eradication of the managerial class. You eradicate the managerial class, and you can assign technically anybody because Bolsheviks truly believed that any person randomly could do the managerial work. As a matter of fact, the managerial work was unnecessary. It didn't require any particular skill. National syndicalism was different because they did believe in the the sustenance of the managerial class, but under a a more aggressive direction of the the syndicate, right? So we're talking about different philosophies, and people put them together. Hitler was a true socialist, but he was not a Marxist. He was not a Bolshevist, right? And Bolshevism didn't work. That's why Stalin had to change it. And Stalin basically eradicated Bolshevism really because he realized that they were putting an imbecile uh, to run a factory and it would run it to the ground, right? I mean, you, could just take, you, can, you can't just take a random guy with shining shoes and make him run Ford Motor, right? I mean, you just can't do it. So, um, but it's interesting because people put them together and they're not the same. Well, look at how the Red Army performed in the first few months of the Civil War, of the Revolution. They abolished all officer positions and rank distinction, and they made orders optional. They would, yes. they would sit around and have a council, and they would vote, you know, should we attack this way, should we attack that way, and you can't run a military along those lines. It, it seems the Jew despises everything that he doesn't know how to do because he's never done anything. That the only skill, perhaps, the Jew doesn't despise is double-edger accounting or something. I, I don't know, I'm guessing. Well, of course, what they don't like is the idea that there is legitimate, there's a legitimate difference uh, between people, right, and groups. They despise this idea because it implies that if someone is better at something, it implies that someone is worse at something, right? And they see the world in a stratified financial way, right? They see it as numbers, less negatives and positives in a, in a sheet, right, in a spreadsheet. So when they see hum- the world this way, they dislike it because it seems to be unfair 
and and unjust, right? I mean, I'm talking about the, seeing it from the positive, right? Seeing the good side of the argument, right? Not seeing the, the darker side, which is they really don't believe this. They just want to dominate everything. But even seeing it from the philosophical perspective, there is a view to it that it's unfair to have these distinctions. Um, true socialism did not see the world that way. They saw the world that there were people that were better at reading and people that were better at fixing things, right? And these distinctions had to be acknowledged and respected. The, the, the worker had to say, you know what, this guy is an intellectual and I respect that. And the intellectual said, I respect this guy because without this guy I wouldn't be driving the street, that type of thing. Um, Bolshevism would basically eradicate all this because the theory is that anyone can do it. And a lot of Americans are basically believe this even though they don't practice it because you hear Americans every day saying, oh, uh, you can be whatever you want. And we know that's not true, right? <laughs> but, but, but they say this nonsense and people believe it. Oh, I can be right. a jet uh, you know, a jet pilot. No, I can't. Okay, I'm sorry. That's not my skill, right? So uh, Americans did buy this, this narrative thanks, thanks to Trotsky, which was the ultimate Bolshevik, right? Stalin had to kick him out because he was insane. Um, it, it took him to this point. And Americans buy hook, line, and sinker, the, the – the philosophy that everyone can do anything when it's not true. Well, you know, um, Hitler was a uniter. I mean, he had so many good qualities. He, uh, the Jews, the Bolsheviks, and so on, that whole philosophy is, is to divide. Even though they say everybody can do anything, they really end up dividing people. And uh, in, in the Third Reich, as you've been saying, um, it, those kind of things were never said. It was differences among even amongst all the German people, were very much acknowledged and accepted. And, and you have to accept that. This is the natural law because it was based also uh, on, a, on a respect for the way nature is, is set up and why it has worked for since the beginning of time, you know, and it continues to correct, correct itself. Yeah, I heard you saying something like that. And so Hitler was a uniter. He united Germany. He united all the classes within Germany, about as good as you could do it. I mean, they're all functioning quite well together. Um, he wanted to unite Protestantism into that German Christianity. That Protestantism is, 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 he couldn't unite the Protestants and the Catholics. He wasn't trying to do that, at least yet. But um, he was trying to unite the Protestants into this German Christianity, but they, they were, didn't, didn't finally go along with that. But then he also wanted to unite Europe uh, as a force versus the British and American uh, Axis kind of, uh, and you know, versus uh, the Russians in the East on the other side. So um, he, he was always trying to unite in a way that was uh, positive things that could be united. That's the way I see him. We don't see that in the U.S. these days. We just see divisive Marxian socialism, class agitation, and class conflict. We don't see the sort of class collaboration that we would have seen with Hitler, Mussolini, Salazar, Franco, Antonescu, Horthy. All the great fascist leaders, they were actually unifiers, yet they're denounced That's as right. tyrants. I agree, although I, I, I agree, although I would, <laughs> although I would, although I, I understand the, the respect of Franco, I would say that Franco deviated a little bit from national syndicalism and from the Falange, and I think that that's the reason that today Spain is uh, such a horrible place, because he basically, when he left, he basically passed over the, the country over to basically the king who doesn't have any power, so basically passed it to the socialists. Um, but I think it's the, the reason is because the formation of a guy like Franco was not the same as the formation of Hitler. Hitler was formed philosophically with a very good foundation, right? I mean, he had a good philosophical 
political foundation. Uh, Franco was a, was a general, and he he saw an opportunity, right? And he he was basically a carlist, right? Technically speaking, he was really a carlist. Um, and he saw national. He was a what? A carlist. Oh, you're saying he was a monarchist. Exactly, a carlist, cardista. These are the the people that promoted the monarchy. But he saw national syndicalism as a good pool to draw people from. But if you look at that history, uh, uh, which is very interesting, you'll see that national syndicalism, the the syndicalists in Spain actually didn't stop liking Franco really early on. And they were correct, right? Because the the national, these groups, right, the Falange was actually racial. They were actually uh, uh, anti-Jews, right? And and Franco was not that far in, right? I mean, he was not really that that far, that sophisticated on this issue. Uh, but these other men like Marc Antonio, and, and there's a, a lot of other men at that time, they were very sophisticated on that matter. So unfortunately, it, 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 Spain didn't have that, and I think that's the reason that Franco eventually didn't even join the, 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 the axis as he should have, or at least taken over uh, Gibraltar, right, and, and help, help Germany out a little bit. But anyway, that's beside the point. The point is this points to Hitler in the sense that Hitler had something that most of these leaders didn't have, which is that he was formed philosophically and intellectually from an early point in his life. So he was prepared to lead a nation correctly instead of just being a guy who was in the right moment at the right time. Yeah. But anyway, I think Hitler had a great influence anyway on other movements, believe it or not, that I know that is not popular to mention. But the truth is that a lot of socialist movements, post-socialist, right, even Marxist movements, were influenced in the 70s and 80s, especially in the third world, by ideas of national socialism, of uh, right to self-determination, and, um, and nationalist versions of Marxism, which are freakish to, to Marxism, right? Because Marxism is internationalist. But, uh, but I think one of Hitler's legacies, that it's, in, it's indirect, is that you did find, for example, you have a lot of Americans that promote Fidel Castro, promote, uh, I don't know, uh, North Korea. But if you look at the policies of North Korea, a lot of them tend to be somewhat racial, tend to be nationalistic, tend to be protectionist, right? They're not internationalist, right? So it's interesting because the, the morphing, the only groups that have survived the fall of the Soviet Union are the more nationalistic versions of Marxism and not the internationalist versions of them. So I think it's, it's a funny legacy that the nationalist aspect of socialism, even if it's in this corrupted, disturbed way, is the only one that exists, you know? Well, well, socialism works good. It, it really does work good in a racially um, homogenous society. Obviously. And, and that's why it did so well in Sweden and, and Norway for all these years. And now it's going to crumble because those societies are being overrun with Kafirs, well, with yeah. Muslims and, and Negroes. Yeah, the, 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 uniting, the unifying forces race, or we could call it nationality, but in some cases it's better to call it race. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, it's not class. You see, that's all, it was all about class differences for the internationalists, and they're still pushing that. They're still pushing, oh, oh the, this class fight against that class, they're taking advantage of you. But uh, Hitler was uniting uh, uh, Germans, and we, want, we think in terms of uniting as a race, then you're all working together for the same, for the cause of your own self, your, your own people. Uh, that's the only way to do it. Well, Bill, even in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, 
we can see in the um, Scandinavian and the Nordic countries, the tax rate borders on basically it's a confiscatory tax. You know, it's they're they're basically confiscating and redistributing wealth. And what innovations have come out of Scandinavia in the last 60 years? I mean, they've done nothing. They've contributed really nothing to the science or the technology of the world. Right. There's no doubt that um that that it has suppressed innovation in Scandinavia. But the society sustained itself, even with the confiscatory taxes, and, and they were like 90%. They still are. Some level. Oh, man. Even with the confiscatory taxes, the society has sustained itself quite well. However, it's, they're going to get a lesson in socialism once they get enough Negroes and Muslims up there on welfare. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and the crime is already spiraling out of control. And that that their socialist that their social experiment is not going to work so good, and, and it's already seeing cracks. And, and that's yet you know the, the even the most oppressive systems can function well, and a white society or any homogenous society can sustain itself under it. But once you get ethnic divisions and racial divisions and and different interest groups working one against the other, it, it has to fall apart. Absolutely. And I'm just thinking of the Scandinavian socialists and the British socialists, they should just count themselves lucky that they have creative, innovative Americans who aren't hindered and disincentivized from exercising their creativity. Otherwise, they'd really have no medical innovations, and the Scandinavians would still be conducting surgery in 1950s fashion. Hmm. And well, I, I, don't, I don't think Hitler would have ever gotten on board with a 90% tax rate. He just wanted, you know, Germans to help other Germans. He didn't want to send SS troops or SA to take 90% of your crop and then distribute it to people who maybe just don't want to work. Tax, taxes were low mm-hmm. in Third Reich Germany, and they were intended to stay low. So, uh, you know, I think this thing with the with the Scandinavian countries and so on, and of course in Britain and well everywhere they're trying it, but they're they're hoping that people will start inter uh, mixing and intermarrying so that there won't be a difference between the whites and the others. That's that's what they're really after. That's that's why they think if they can push this long enough and keep this going, there'll finally be enough uh, mixed people, uh, and then that will become more normal, and you know then it will grow. That that's the danger. And then there won't be any population base to oppose them. That, that's yes. the Jewish plan. That's what they plan mm-hmm. for all of our nations. That's always been their plan. It, 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 their, their plan was first taken out of the closet in 1910 with, with that played a melting plot, the, the melting pot and Israel's anvil in America. And um, uh, Americans bought it. it it's crazy. I, I mean, yeah, America was founded as a melting pot. Scots, Irish, English, Germans, Norwegians. That, that's a melting pot of, of ethnically homogenous people. The only thing they basically had was a different language and, and slightly different religious beliefs. And, and, and we were at, you know, all from components of the same race. Well, well, that's the melting pot they really had envisioned is finally being realized for them. And, and I don't think my great-grandfather and, and grandparents would have bought it so easily if if they'd have really seen the Jewish idea behind what the melting pot was, right? What they want is for our nation to be a Mexico or a Brazil where everybody's a, a different shade of brown. Right. But but they, they came out with yeah. these plans right from the, the earliest parts of the 20th century. They've made this plan fully evident in public view. 
and and that takes chutzpah, right? That that's their own word. Well, well, it does, and and um, they they've incrementally incrementally implemented it, and, and it's almost like the people are on narcotics that they can't see it or do anything about it. That they should have been marching on the Jews a hundred years ago in this country. Well, they've made it look they've made it look like a uh, a hateful thing. You know, this hate idea has come forth. Um, yeah, of course, so, uh, what's yeah, but it's, it's yeah. the opposite. Yeah. But of course, that's the reason that the nationalistic, uh, socialist type uh, political movements are, are dangerous for them because they're not allowed to spread their crappy, you know, pardon the expression, but their crappy products on indigenous populations because indigenous populations have their own products. And the only way you can inter- create an international marketplace is to destroy boundaries and to destroy cultural boundaries. And the only way you can do this is to destroy ethnic identity in every local aspect. So therefore, the destruction of language, uh, thus English becomes international, as an example. The destruction of uh, particular traditions, of foods, because now I can sell you a hamburger when before. And I saw this personally, so I've seen this personally. The, the, the Burger King comes in, no one wants to buy that because everyone knows it's crap. Because in that culture, no one eats burgers, right? No one knows what the hell a burger is, right? But 10 years later, after uh, brainwashing for you know, 10 years of Hollywood movies, and everyone wants to eat a burger, right? I went to Brazil recently, and there were lines in the street to, to go to McDonald's. And McDonald's, like a, it's considered like an upper-end restaurant, which I think is pretty funny. Um, but why? Before this didn't work, because no Brazilian in his right mind, no matter his race, right? There's white Brazilians, mixed Brazilians, black Brazilians. None of them would want to go to this stupid place. But now all of them want to go to this stupid place, right? Because, because now that's the cool thing to do. Their objective is to destroy boundaries and destroy ethnic identity because they can sell their products easily. They don't have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to do one, commercials in different languages and different types, change your products. They can just do it for one person in one language and everyone will buy it. And that's really the objective. And that's why these guys that call themselves liberals and anti-capitalists are borderline retarded subnormals. Because the truth is that they are promoting exactly the ideology, right, that will allow them, these corporations, to control the world. Uh, and they should advocate for self-determination and they should advocate for national identity and ethnic identity because that's the only way they will protect themselves, their progeny, and everyone else, even their protected victim classes, from being dominated by these freaks, these power freaks that basically control these corporations. Well, well the, the, the corporate plan that Severus just spelled out, I read fully outlined in, in the pages of the Wall Street Journal in the 1990s. And, and, and every aspect of it, the breaking down of national borders, the breaking down of ethnic boundaries, all for the sake of world global commerce, every aspect of it was spelled out in the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal in the 1990s. It probably wasn't new there. It, it was probably 100 years older than that, but they get more and more brazen about it. They were saying in the pages of the Wall Street Journal in the 1990s that all our borders are going to be broken down and our laws are going to be equalized so that we would have the same laws everywhere. Mm-hmm. So that and, that's lawyers- why, and that's what imperialism is. That is true colonialism and true imperialism. And that's why if you're an anti-imperialist, you should be anti-that, because true imperialism is exactly this. But this is commercial imperialism, and it's the worst kind, right? I'd rather you come in with a tank and, and kill my family, but at least I know where you come from, right? I can respect that. 
at the yeah, end of you, can, you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, but yeah, I've seen that spell out in, in, the, in, in the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal for, um, for, for several years until I got so disgusted with it I couldn't read it anymore. I, I knew what the Jews were up to by then, and I didn't want to hear anymore. So, well, that, that's why the, the, only, uh, the only fight that people should be in is this fight for um, ethnic uh, uh, purity and uh, racial boundaries and, uh, and national boundaries and so on. That's, that's where it's at. That's what's being attacked. And, uh, of course, that is being, that's made to look at, uh, you know, uh, racist and fascist and this and that, but it's totally twisted around. So the education, we need a huge education uh, program, but this this program has been just fantastic. I think. Um, I hope it gets uh, millions of hits. <laughs> Racism is love <laughs> for God's original creation, and anti-racism it is the will and determination to destroy the creation of God. So, so yeah. if you're a Christian, you should be a racist, or you're not a Christian. It's you should be a racist too. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. No matter what you are, you should be a racist because a racist is basically someone who protects the integrity of of natural reality. If you see it as a Christian, you see it as creation. If you see it as uh, from a secular viewpoint, you're still protecting nature, right? The natural reality is protected by racism, right? Because it protects the integrity of nature and also protects nature from the dominance, the, the imperialistic dominance of those who want to control it for financial profit. So we're all in the same boat, even though these lunatics are being, you know, being manipulated by them and they're playing their pawns, right? At the end of the day, they should all be in this side of the fence because it will protect what they claim they want to protect, which is uh, diversity, right? If, if you were going to use that term, the true term would imply not... Uh, not a mix of races, but an actual separation of races. So we're all in the same. In, in that context, we're all fighting for the same thing. We just have to do a better job at, at communicating this: that we are for right for self-determination. We are anti-imperialist. We are anti-market uh, uh, capitalism in this aspect, right? And this 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 abusive type of capitalism because it denies the integrity of ethnic boundaries, um, and that shouldn't be. Well, what do we say to people, or what do you say if somebody says, well, uh, or believes that uh, that the Jews are a part of this? They they also want a national integrity and in their national boundaries. I mean, is this true? Are they? No, well, we... <laughs> that's only because they don't called it. It's only a a um, you know, a, a refuge for criminals and a training ground for future criminals is based. I'm paraphrasing. Say <laughs> how. Yes, but the thing is, they do have a, a clear identity um, and they have clear racial solidarity. So they can, have the, they can have the privilege of moving around because no matter where you go, you've got Argentina, there's still Jews acting as Jews, they're just speaking Spanish, right? And if you go to Germany, they're speaking German. But at the end of the day, they're still Jews, and that racial solidarity functions for them. And I was talking to this off the air with Bill today, that that's the reason they function economically in business because their success is not based on, on some kind of supernatural genius in business, but the fact that they do good networking and they have racial solidarity. And this helps them in business. 
we don't have that because we come from a culture that ethnic solidarity and racial identity is somewhat connected directly to land, right? The Hitler, that's why Hitler was an agrarian, right? Because it's connected to the earth, it's connected to location. Jews don't have this mm-hmm. concept, but they've used it very effectively because they can be anywhere and they're still Jews. Uh, Bill, yes, you're like, mentioning... should, they be? should they be anywhere? I mean, you know, where do they fit into this? They fit uh, where? They, they should be gone. They, I mean, they should be gone from our, our uh, cultures. Uh, they have well, to be somewhere on their own. You might find it interesting that in 1944, the SS came out with a pamphlet, The Jew as World Parasite, and in Part 3, they described the Jews as a counter-race. And I'll quote now, If we thoroughly study the racial nature of the Jew, we conclude that Jewry is not a race in the ordinary sense of the word. Instead, as Houston Stewart Chamberlain wrote, it must be seen as a counter-race, although the term counter-race cannot be understood in a biological sense. From a biological standpoint, Jewry is a stable, inbred mixture of extreme races and racial rubbish. The concept of counter-race primarily means the destructive and disruptive effect of Jewry within natural races. The distinguishing mark of Jewry within human races has to do, on the one hand, with the racial makeup of the Jews who have been scattered for millennia, and on the other hand, in their stubborn adherence to the crassest materialism based on their so-called religious laws. Jewry is the result of the mixing of every possible race. It is the biggest racial mishmash in history. This racial mishmash is so dangerous for all peoples because it be- because it becomes sorry because it includes elements from every race. The bad characteristics of these races have been passed on for many generations through Jewry in ever stronger form. From this artificial, rootless, materialistic racial mishmash, a parasitic counter-race has developed among the peoples. The core of Jewry is the coming together of rootless, rejected, asocial, sick, and degenerate elements of the various races predominantly of Middle Eastern and Oriental origins. One should remember that in antiquity, lepers were ejected from their racial community, just as were criminal, asocial elements. That's pretty good, because I've always said that, um, and, and I'm surprised to hear it from, 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 from Chamberlain, because that's really good. Uh, I've always said that if you take all the DNA in the world and put it in a blender, what you'd end up with is a Jew. And well, that's Bill, you the reason were... I said Chamberlain is important, because Chamberlain influenced Hitler in, in a lot of his philosophy, and Chamberlain was very clear about all these things. So it's, it's, it's a cool read. It really is. And, Bill, you were talking about the, um, Palestine and Jewish Zionism, and on page 184 in Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote, when the Zionists try to make the rest of the world believe that the new national consciousness of the Jews will be satisfied by the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine, the Jews thereby adopt another means to dupe the simple-minded Gentile. They have not the slightest intention of building up a Jewish state in Palestine so as to live in it. What they are really aiming at is to establish a central organization for their international swindling and cheating. As a sovereign state, this cannot be controlled by any of the other states. Therefore, it can serve as a refuge for swindlers who have been found out and at the same time a high school for the training of other swindlers. Yes, and that's exactly the quote I was trying to refer to. And isn't that what they've used Israel for over the last six or seven decades? It's a hole in the wall, a safe house. And they've also used it as a bedroom for hundreds of thousands of Eastern European sex slaves that they've tricked into coming to Palestine, right? Or they just grab them off the street and take them there. Either way, they do it. 
Well, so uh, Hitler was was right to want to remove Jews from Germany. It wasn't just him, you know, his National Socialist philosophy and so on. They they were right to want to remove Jews, but the problem was and is what you know where 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 to put them. You know where they where they can go. Uh, That's always this is where they get us. You know Uh, they don't belong anywhere. Well, yeah. Bill, you know, I, I've heard someone talk about something called solar Zionism, the idea that we should establish a Jewish homeland on the surface of the sun. <laughs> well, I mean, they tried, they did try to uh, establish a homeland in Argentina, right? I've mentioned this before. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did try. I mean, they bought land, they did everything, but the Argentinians were nuts and they couldn't finish it, right? Um, Madagascar, as you all guys, all you all of you know, was another planned uh, location for a Jewish homeland, and another one was over there uh, at, at some part of Siberia, right? Well, how um, about the um, the Jewish Autonomous Oblast in Eastern Soviet Union? Stalin established exactly, it, exactly. but it's only ten percent Jewish. The Jews had no interest in moving to Siberia. Of course not. That's my point. Well, so, that's not really end, Siberia. I mean, that's a pretty nice place. It's not that bad. But they don't want to go there because they don't want to be with. The, they don't want to be separated from the rest. The rest of no, us. I mean, they. No, they go that's there. the yeah. thing. So that's it's like far. herding cats. You're never going to get it. Well, yes, you can't. Have, you can't have an island of just vampires. Vampires cannot live just amongst themselves. Yeah, they would destroy one another. So that's one. That would be one way. So, but I mean, uh, they, you know, that's could, that's why they have to be everywhere. But this is this. This, and people, uh, the thing is to teach people, to get people to understand that this is where the problem comes from, and they don't want to see it that way because it goes against their humanitarian beliefs. We could get They're the all Jews all of Madagascar, and they wouldn't go there. They don't want to be isolated from the rest of oh, the no. world. It, no. We offered to move to Australia or the North Pole and let the Jews have all of North America. They would turn it down. No, they follow you to the North Pole. Right. We, we could move to the Falkland <laughs> Islands and that they would come there. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is always kind of a, 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 a you know, a kind of unseemly conversation, but when I'm talking about this, it always ends up here. Because uh, when you try to think of what, you know, you go on and on about uh, what a problem they are and what they've done, and then you say, well, what? What what do we do about it? Where where can they go? And then you see that you can't. There's nowhere they can go except well, the ground. Well, Carolyn, yeah, Carolyn, but that's actually uh, that's an interesting point, and I'll tell you why. Because in the true fashion of self determination, it is not our job to determine where they go. The all our job is to say not with me, right? But it's their job to using their skill to carve out a space uh, space for themselves if they can, right? Natural selection. If they can't then they wither on the vine, right? But it's, it's our job to, it's, it's, and basically it's our house. And in our house, we decide who lives in it and who doesn't. Now, I don't tell the person who's been uh, eating, uh, opening my fridge, eating my food, and having sex with my wife, I'm going to buy you a house so you can go there. No, I just don't get out. And it's his business to find a house, right? But we know, mm-hmm. though, from historical precedent, when the Jews were thrown out of Spain, they came back with the Moors. When they were thrown out of the Byzantine Empire, they came back with the Turks. If we threw them out of the U.S., they'd all regroup in China, Japan, maybe India. They'd hijack all those countries, and the next thing you know, there'd be World War III. Yes, of course. Well, uh, I mean, yeah, but, that... but uh, Severus is right that 
I, I really am glad that he said this because this is this is the only way to look at it. Uh, Self determination. Every every national group or however people uh, group themselves together that they say we're going to determine for ourselves, they have to decide that they don't want Jews or that certain people are a problem to them. They have to decide, but they have to, we have to have a general atmosphere of permission for people to do that. So we talk about self-determination, but it's not a reality at all. When, when certain European nations, say Austria, vote in certain right-wing politicians, they're now hungry. Well, you know, they're, they, uh, the, whole, the whole setup uh, starts working against them to stop them from doing that. Being able to do it, but but this is still the only the only option that you say we have self determination amongst all the various groups, and it's and right it's up to us, whatever nation we are, we are all in the United States, so uh, we it's up to us to work in our own nation to uh, to clean it up and to do what we think is best for it, and that's all we can do. Well, well, we have to work to clean our own nation up. That's true. I really don't like to talk from a secular perspective about the, the fate of the Jews or what's going to happen to them or what solution men could come up with for them. Mm-hmm. Because biblical prophecy promises a final pogrom. Absolutely. Permanent pogrom. And that is the end of the Jews. The Jew cannot continually and forever resist the creator and, and get away with it. God will not be mocked. The Jews' days are short-lived. And in one hour, their fall will come. And along those well, lines, Bill, I just want to say that the historical ex- um, expulsions of the Jews throughout, you know, medieval Europe and the um, pre-industrial era, then the industrial era, and National Socialist Germany and the other fascist countries, I think expulsion is somewhat short-sighted in that I can't think of any nation or any people that I hate so much that I want to dump a million or ten million Jews on them. That there's, well, there's, well, nobody, well, there's nobody I hate that much. Right, but the reality of the situation is that you're telling all the ticks in the forest to go to that deer, and you have to stay on that deer. Mm-hmm. And that deer doesn't have a permanent blood supply, and, and you know it might work for a couple of weeks, and, and then before you know it, the ticks are moving to another deer, and they're sneaking sure. around a tree, and they're going to another deer and another deer, and, and, and before you know it, the whole world's corrupted again. Exactly. Course, I mean, I mean, but remember, in the in medieval times and a lot of those days, you're saying that oh, um, they left, but but they were actually invited and welcomed in other places, right? Until they destroyed them. Like for example, the Turks, right? I mean, a lot of the Sephardics left Spain. Uh, a lot of the Moranos were actually also expelled because there was an Inquisition, and they ended up in Turkey, right? What today people would call Turkey. Um, so. But but these men invited them, right? Because a lot of these people, some of them were mongrels, and they were saying, hey, I need these guys to manage my, my stuff, right? Without knowing that these people are going to defraud them and take them for everything. But there is a difference, though, because there is a difference between National Socialist Germany, as an example, and, um, you know, medieval Spain, in the sense that the, the, the view of how Jews were seen was different. It was more radical in, in some ways, but there was not a pan-European... Uh, clearly defined racial perspective on the issue. And therefore, it was a lot easier to, for you to return because you could always change the narrative and return. Um, if uh, Queen Isabella had, had, had a, a pan-Aryan view of the world, it would have been different, I believe. But the thing is, that didn't exist at the time in the same fashion that we would, uh, that, you know, we didn't, they didn't have Nuremberg laws, is my point. 
Sure, and if you tell a parasite you cannot be a parasite, you cannot live as a parasite, you must support yourself instead of living at the expense of others, the parasite considers that persecution. Yes, he does. And that's why they leave, or they modify their strategy. Uh, like a lot of them said, well, wait a minute, okay, so I can't be a Jew and a banker, so can I be a Christian and a banker? Yes, mm -hmm. okay, then I'm a Christian, right? I mean, that's, that's basically the strategy. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what happened, of course. Queen Isabella was kind of cool because she did go further. He said, no, 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 no. I want you to do a study and analysis of their last names and their history and their blood because uh, the Jewish aspect of it is a blood issue. So she was clear on that, and, and the Inquisition was very clear on that. So they had that right. But my point is that you can't have a wishy-washy perspective on this because eventually you will get bitten, right? Like a lot of these new white nationalist movements without missioning the names, that they say, well, I mean, Jews are kind of white. If they agree with us, we're fine, right? Um, that sounds okay originally because a lot of Jews will agree with you, right? They'll, they'll say, yeah, let's get black people out. Oh, yeah, I agree with you. I'm down with that, right? They agree on the everything day, until you come to the Jews. Exactly, and then they'll bite you. That's my point. So you can't be wishy-washy. And that's the reason that I don't trust most white nationalists if they don't show at least some respect to Adolf Hitler. And that's a good way of, right, of, of circling it around to the point that if you don't show any respect to Adolf Hitler – and, his, and most of his policies and his movement, then it tells me that you are wishy-washy. And if you're wishy-washy, you and your progeny will eventually stab me in the back uh, in defense of these people, and then we're going to be back in the same place. Mm -hmm. Right. That's good. Well, I often say, too, that the two people that the Jews defame the most are Jesus Christ and Adolf Hitler, and those are the two people who have doubtlessly done the most damage against them. Aside from the fact, you know, that the famed people like Martin Luther, Paul the Apostle, and various popes, but it seems that if you turn on the History Channel, 90% of it's devoted to Hitler and how he was this, how he was that, he had syphilis, he had this, and the other 10% is devoted to how Jesus either didn't exist, or the Romans killed him, the Jews aren't to blame, or aliens came down from some other planet, and they're the reason we're here. It has nothing to do with God. It's, it's um, ancient astronauts, alien astronauts. Well, well, that's the you know the Jews own Hollywood. The Jews own and control all of the media. Why would we ever think that they would use it for anything other than their own gain? Mm -hmm. it's, like, it's like what you said, Bill. When a, a comrade opens the Jewish newspaper, if he does not see himself defamed, he did nothing positive the day before. So we can tell from the fact that the Jews devote almost every waking hour and all of their media to defaming Hitler and Jesus, we can tell which two individuals have done the most for our people in the history of the world. Well, absolutely. Christ has been know, dead for 2,000 years, and they're still defaming him, and Hitler's been dead for about 70 years, and they, they still don't shut up about him. And, and they have to keep that in the minds of the people. They have to keep that but because they have to keep the minds of the people suppliant to the Jewish paradigm. And, and the, 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 the slogan is, um, Jews do what's good for Jews. Or their, whole, their, their slogan is, what's good for the Jews? That's their question about everything. What's good for, what's good for the Jews? And that's the position that they take. So that, that tells, that's right there. They're not concerned with what's, what's, excuse me, what is good for us. And uh, we are not, they are not us, and we are not them, or they wouldn't have these kind of ideas about what's good for the Jews. Well, um, they never told the truth. 
and and they don't care about the truth. They only care about their own advancement and and their own position. Yeah, and and they they've been indoctrinated. It's true they have been indoctrinated through by their own people throughout all these centuries that everybody hates them and for no good reason because they're God's chosen because God you know did it that way that God chose them and therefore everybody else is jealous and they're going to have to suffer all this persecution. So they have to stick together through all this and whatever they do. Uh, they, what, I mean, anything that they do to help Jews is good. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's uh, sex slavery of whites and so on. The real if it helps Jews, it's good. And this is their firm belief. They even and the, sell each other out, though, because the real, kingdom is divided. Sorry, Bill, go on. The, the real reason why they're hated everywhere is because of pandering, usury, pornography, prostitution, gambling, and every way else they destroy a society. Mm-hmm. And the Jews often will analyze it, is it good for Jews? But then we look at a Bernie Madoff character. He embezzled and defrauded billions from other Jews. But then again, he was just thinking, is it good for Bernie Madoff? And since Bernie Madoff's a Jew, if it's good for Madoff, it's good for Jews. So, I mean, if you, if you come from a race of criminals and thieves, you ought to know better than to trust your money with one of your own kind because he's a fellow criminal and a fellow thief. I mean, well, that's not the way they think. Snakes do bite each other, right? I mean, Certainly. Do, yeah. I mean, it's like Shark, it's, sharks yeah. have been known to feed on other sharks. Exactly. So it's not like it's uh, out of this world. Right? It's not out of the natural realm. <laughs> well, as Bill was saying, though, the, the Jews would like people to believe that, quote, anti-Semitism, even though they're not Semites, but anti-Semitism is a result of external factors. It has nothing to do with Jewish behavior, and it's just a bunch of dis- uh, dissatisfied, disaffected, white losers, social miscreants who woke up one day and decided, well, my life is miserable. I'm going to blame everything on the Jews because they have a lot of money and they're successful. Well, well right. The Jewish, the, the Jewish insolence creates anti-Semitism. They create their, their filthy deeds and, and their dishonesty and their extortion and, and 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 their and everything they do that's foul creates anti-Semitism in every white civilization at some time or another. It's bound to happen where you have a Jew, and and he's allowed to practice openly for for X amount of time. There's bound to be a so-called anti-Semite. It, exactly, Jews being Jews. That's what causes people to hate Jews. It's like deers hating ticks. Yeah, you know why wouldn't deers hate ticks? It's Oh, you're an anti-tickite. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but it is that logic. Of course, they're really good at morphing language, so therefore, your criticism of them is a type of envy, um, and it's object of ridicule. And I think sometimes we should use the same terms. In other words, if uh, uh, you hate Jews, that means that you envy them. Well, if you hate uh, us, then it's because you envy us, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, it's all about the utilization of language as a weapon. And I think our people have used language as a weapon effectively. I mean, we invented language for our sakes, right? But, but we have uh, been found lacking in our ability to utilize language effectively as a, as a weapon of war, right? Uh, we have allowed people to define language, to uh, define narratives, to uh, develop and structure trigger words that, that create effects on, in the minds of people. And we still, we still follow their lead in that sense. And I think the, the, one of the best ways to, to turn it around is to actually utilize language as an effective weapon and see language as a weapon, not see it 
as something that you use to, hey, I'm reading the box of uh, Lucky Charms, right? That's what I'm reading, right? Most people read Lucky Charms and that's it, right? That's not reading. That's what Nietzsche, and that's what I like about Nietzsche. Nietzsche used to say that most people shouldn't read because in the moment that reading becomes vulgar, it becomes popular, then reading is going to be vulgar itself, right? Because it will lower the standard of what reading means. Now every idiot can read, but all they do is read signs in the street and, and read packages, right? So I, I somewhat agree with this idea, right, that, that you shouldn't take to the level, uh, allow these people to define words, but we should use these words effectively and not see it as something that you use functionally, but also see it as a weapon of war and apply it as a weapon of war. What do you, what do you think about, uh, you know, most people say, oh, uh, Nazi is, uh, is not, the word should be national socialist, and we shouldn't use the word Nazi. Uh, that's their word for, uh, for, uh, certain, for us or for certain uh, people in the past, and uh, that, that wasn't used by, by the uh, national socialists themselves. But what do you think about using Nazi, uh, say, people like us, as in, in a positive way or directed against, uh, you know, I mean, well, what, what would be your position on that? Well, th these are two separate issues, right? Because one is a historical, theoretical, intellectual issue, and the other one is a word management issue, right? One is whether or not Nazi was used, was it not used. But the thing is, our people usually spend a lot of time in these stupid type of issues, right? I I'm saying in general. In other words, we spend a lot of energy dis discussing these very minute issues of whether or not the swastika was called swastika at the time or was hacking crowds or whatever, when their issue is the swastika. In other words, the Jews, doesn't, the, Jew, the Jews don't focus on whether or not the swastika was called hacking crowds or was called swastika. They focus on the swastika itself, right? And the same thing with Nazi. It doesn't matter if Nazi was used or not. They use Nazi as a derogatory term now, and it has a specific trigger, an emotional trigger in our brain now, irrespective of who invented it, right? So the issue would be if we want to turn that term around, and we should because even if we say National Socialist, it really doesn't mean anything to the listener. Nazi has a meaning to people, so we should maybe turn it around and use it effectively. Now, I do have a, a historical thing. You mean, should we, should we yes, use the word Nazi a, yeah, in a positive yeah. sense? Be yeah, 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 be, uh, yeah, and use it in mockingly. In other words, every time something bad happens, oh, of course, he probably is some kind of Nazi and racist and kind of mock it because most people then will become desensitized, right? They, they will lose the sentimental attachment to the term because now they understand that just people use it as a, as a term, a, a derogatory term, and they'll lose attachment to it. That's what's happening to racism, right? I mean, Today, what's happened to the term fascist? It seems that yeah. fascist in the English-speaking world is just a synonym for a bully or a, t a tyrant, a totalitarian to call someone a fascist today means nothing exactly just like racist right the racist now is losing power if you go to a republican tea party meeting and you say racist they'll laugh because what they're saying oh that's a liberal term right but that was not like that 10 years ago that was not like that 20 years ago so we have been effective in morphing that term into something somewhat meaning meaningless and then we, then we have to work on turning it around into something else we have to do the same thing with nazi now really quickly if you don't mind I do have a historical opinion about it, which is that I think that the term Nazi was used as a, as a shortening of the term, but I think at the time people did use it because you have men like Goebbels who did use terms like Nazi Sotsi, right, uh, to describe national, because Nazi just meant nationalist, and then Sotsi meant socialist, right? So a lot of times you would see these men saying, oh, I'm a Nazi Sotsi, and, and they would write books about, oh, I'm more Sotsi than Nazi, right? So these terms are not necessarily bad at all, and, and they're in their origin, it was not like they were calling them, 
you know, uh, a slur. They were just shortening the term to, to make it easier, right. and it was somewhat, you know what I mean? So I think it's not that important, the origin, but I do have an opinion about the origin, but I think now it's our focus is how do we use it effectively? Well, well, you know, I would rather use the term Nazi, and I've used it, and, and sometimes referring to, to World War II Germans, to Adolf Hitler himself, I prefer National Socialist, but, but I use the term Nazi all the time, and I use the term racist all the time, and people tell me, oh, you shouldn't use that term, blah, 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 and, and they're right to a degree, but not if I don't use the term as the Jews use the term right? To me, the term racist is a good thing. I'm white. I'm supposed to be a racist. I'm a white Christian. I have to be a racist. It's my obligation. To me, the term Nazi, well, well it's very interesting that it's also a Hebrew word for prince, right? And, and every time a Jew calls you a Nazi, they're calling you a prince in Hebrew. I think that's funny, right? That, that's, well, well, anyway, I, I use it to show that I'm not afraid of it. I'm not afraid of the term racist. I'm not afraid of the term Nazi. Brand me with it. I'll wear it with honor. It, it's because it shows that I'm opposed to the Jew, that I'm opposed to the creator of the world's perversions. Yeah, and, yeah and, and, this idea that they have, that so many white nationals have, they, they don't want to be called a Nazi. They're just scared to death of being called a Nazi. That's why they don't want to be identified. Because they're scared. Yeah, and we should. We that's what needs to be turned around. Yes, but not only that. I think, if you don't mind, let me give you an example of something I, I think about, which is, let's let's have an example. Music, right? Now, if you see most black people, they say, "Oh, we invented this music, we invented that music." But the truth is, none of these people had any of the instruments that they claim that they made their music with, right? There's no guitars in Africa, right? <laughs> there's no, there's no, uh, right? I mean, but let's be honest, right? There's none of this existed. The same thing with clothing. Oh, it's black clothing. That doesn't exist. Even if I wear my pants down to my knees and my boxers are hanging out and I have a hat sideways, that's my clothing because I invented clothing and those guys were naked, right? But the thing is they defined the, the, the culture and they have turned that culture around to these people actually believe that they invented clothing when they were naked in Africa, right? And they invented music when they didn't have a freaking instrument that it's worth a damn over there in Africa. We invented all these instruments. We invented trumpets, we invented guitars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but what these people do is they, they take our concepts, our ideas, our philosophies, like socialism, like language, like clothing, like music, and they redefine them, and we allow them to redefine them, and then we let them abuse us with our own invention, right? So do you understand what I mean? So this is the same thing. I do. Now. Yeah. That's good. <clears throat> so I think it's crazy. I think it's, it's a crazy idea, and I think we should reclaim these things, and that's why I try my best. Uh, because we're all a product of this culture, right? But I try my best to usually mock these ideas. So when someone tells me, oh, uh, my kid is dressing like a black man, I say, no, he's dressing like an idiot, but he's not dressing like a black man because if he's dressed like a black man, he should be naked running around with a plate on his lip, right? That's dressing like a black man. Dressing like a black man is naked with a plate on his lip and, and, a, and a box or something in his head, right? Everything else is white people acting stupidly, but it's still white stuff, right? Um, and and I, I try not to play their game of redefining reality uh, for their sake because I end up defending and fighting stuff that doesn't, right, like, def like defining the term Hispanic. They define the term Hispanic to mean uh, a mongrel when it's not a mongrel. They took the term Latino, which is basically a description of a tribe in Italy, 
that basically founded the Roman Empire, and now it's some freaking Indian from a, a freaking a Maya Indian suddenly is a Latino. So I try to refuse these terms because these terms are their definitions of these terms, and they're actually using those terms to give credence and value to things that do not hold credence and do not hold value. Absolutely right. And these, these two words I also don't like. And to me, Latino is someone from one of the Latin cultures along the Mediterranean, I guess. Uh, sure. Um, but they want to extend that's, it to that's these, what I think the Chinese or Indian. That mean it's not a Mexican. Uh, yeah. And and Hispanic means a, a real Spaniard, not from Spain, not uh, these uh, and even the national terms, this is something we've discussed before with Bill, uh, that, that they use national boundary terms to describe racial terms, and they're not the same, because you can find a white man in Mexico, and you can find a black man in Mexico. These are not mm-hmm. racial definitions. These are national definitions, and these national definitions are morphed, are redefined by whoever controls language. So Mexican oh. becomes anybody, but but Mexican could be anything, right? I mean, it's not really a definition, right. a racial right. definition. No. Along those lines, you're saying then that in their definition, an Algerian or a Cameroonian Negro born in France becomes a Frenchman. Exactly, and, that's, and they've done that, and they've, but they've done it backwards too, because Algerian, that's another thing. Algerian is it's a white man's invention. Kenya is a white man's invention. All these countries didn't exist because white people went there, created boundaries, established governments, invented languages for them, and so they didn't have a country. Algeria didn't exist. A true Kenyan would be a white man that came from Europe and invented that freaking thing because that thing didn't exist. That's my point. <laughs> well, they've never really invented their own government. The Negroes just had tribes. Exactly, exactly. But, but, but these ethnic definitions in Africa are fictitious ethnic definitions because, true, because these nations don't exist. They're inventions of colonialism. Mm-hmm. The boundaries are colonial boundaries established by Portuguese, by Spaniards, by French. It's so ridiculous to me because these people, we're applying concepts that are ours to them, and we're giving them credence without even understanding that we're giving them credence. And that's my point. Like you said, uh, some African tribesman removes the plate from his lip, puts a shirt on and a hat sideways, goes to France, and he's a Frenchman. No, he's not, right? Uh, and vice versa. I can't join a tribe, and suddenly I'm a member of this tribe, right? I'm a Hutu, right? I'm not a Hutu because I go there, right? I'm still who I am. Um, but, but these definitions also affect us, you know. Right. Oh. I think the lip hanging down around his neck is a deal breaker. <laughs> I, think, I think if I see that coming my way, I say, hey, if I were you, just step away, right? But that's what I mean. But, but there's, a, there's a dark side to nationalism, and that's it. That once we define nationalism as a, as a, as a governmental structure, right, as a state-defined national boundary um, that someone else defines for us, there's an issue to that because the, the definition should be based on ethnicity, which is what Hitler was trying to determine. That's why he didn't care about Austria, Prussia, whatever. It's an ethnic definition. Um, because then we can morph that definition to include others and then say they're members of this nation. That's what happened in Mexico, and that's what happened in the United States. I remember when I was a kid, uh, when you said American, I had a specific image of what an American was when I was a kid, and I was not in the United States. Right? I was in Europe. I was a kid. I remember American meant an Anglo American, right? I imagine a cowboy with boots. I mean, that was my imagery. My, that's my, my, my point is I didn't think of anything else because there was an identity, what the term American meant. The same thing if you, say, if you said to me Italian, I had a particular perspective, etc. Uh, Croatian, whatever. You have a particular image in your mind. 
but, but, but Jews will de- redefine these terms and use them against you, but they won't start with you. They won't say American is uh, Michael Jordan. They will start with Mexican, and then you say, oh, yeah, we're, we're overrun by Mexicans. But what the hell does that mean? I mean, are we really overrun by Mexicans? Well, we're overrun by people that come from Mexico, but most of them are freaking pure-blooded Indians. So technically speaking, we're being overrun by Indians, right? <laughs> and even the term Indian, right? I mean, so my point is we have to be smarter about the way we use language and use it against our enemies. If not, we're going to be destroyed, right? Because they're, we're allowing them to use our stuff against us. Well, I really agree with you about the language, and it's hard. You know, um, I make these uh, decisions that I'm not going to use this or that word again, and then I, then I notice that I'm, I am. Because uh, it's so hard to, to explain why I'm going to say it differently, and this is this is why this is how we get trapped into it because it's the way it's the way the talk goes. So we fall back into that. Well, well, you're brainwashed. It's brainwashing. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd rather use mestizo than Hispanic, but I catch myself using Hispanic sometimes because of 50 years of indoctrination into the way the word Hispanic is used. And there's a lot of words like that, that and, and many of them I have broken myself of. Well, I've broken myself of Hispanic. I don't have a problem well, with I that haven't one. Had a tr- I haven't had, you know, the ability to break myself of. And, and it is adopting the Jewish paradigm. And, 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 you know, I did a program with Clifton Emmerheiser two years ago on the confusion of geography and genealogy in the Bible. And... Yeah, and yeah, reading the Bible, and, and you know the people are, are white Hebrews, but you know it says the Moabites because they live in Moab, and the actual genealogical Moabites were a mixed race back then. And there's a lot of that right in the Bible. And, and the context tells you that the person definitely was not of mixed race. The context tells you that, that the person was of the same stock as the Hebrews, but the, the word doesn't and that confusion of genealogy and geography in among our race is 4,000 years old. It's very yes. clear. Like Judean, nobody... right? <laughs> Judean, it's the same issue, right? Yeah, yeah um, right. Judean yeah. is the issue. And, and that's why Paul said he only cares about his kinsmen in Judea who are Israelites according to the flesh, he says in Romans chapter 9. And, and he contrasts them to the Edomites in Judea, who are the progenitors of today's Jews. And that's very clear in Scripture, but most people aren't, you know, most readers of the Bible have the mainstream perspective, and they're not trained to pick up on that. They're just not. And, and, mm-hmm. and the, the, the propaganda that's fed to them actually denies those very words. And, and Hitler spelled it out good when he said in, in Mein Kampf, and I'm paraphrasing again, he said that, that there's no way that a Negro or a Chinaman could ever be a German. Just because they could speak the language, that doesn't make them a German. But the exactly. Jewish ideal is that anybody could be everything, as you brought up before. You could go to France and you could be a Frenchman. You could go to Brazil and you could be a Brazilian. Well, the governments now say they are. I mean, they insist. They say now... Everybody who's a citizen here is a Frenchman, and we're, it's against the law to say that they're not. Right. Or to say, well, you're yeah, not a real yeah, Frenchman. Yeah, well, look at that, that woman on the, on the tram in, uh, in London, was she, or wherever she was, who yeah, started yeah. telling those blacks that they're not English, uh, they're not British, and they should, and, and she, they put her in jail. In the West. Yeah, in the West. Um, you know, it's a crime. 
Yes, it is. Yes, but it's it's it's, a, it's it's from the romanticism, which is the idea that that countries can be built on concepts which are abstract instead of built on people which are not abstract, and that's why a lot of Americans today say, "Well, America is a country of an idea, a dream of a world where we can all work." Or whatever we wish. It, it, it's nonsense. It's all sentimental nonsense. Wow. It sounds wonderful to people. But what I mean is that it's, it, it, a lot of modern people describe, describe nations as built on concepts instead of what they really are built on, which is people. Mm-hmm. And specific people, right? Well, our nation was founded for our founders and their posterity. And we here on this program, we're counted amongst their posterity. But a large number of the people in this nation and coming into this nation as we speak and that are going to come into this nation over the next however many years, they're not part of that posterity. They're interlopers. Yes, but that's, yes. But that's what, we're, what Bill was saying, which is interesting, which is an Irishman who comes to the uh, United States, would he be considered part of that posterity or not? It, well, it depends. It depends on his ability to actually integrate or to, to somehow somewhat integrate himself into his culture, but the issue is that an Irishman and an Englishman can integrate themselves fine, right? But there's other cultures that cannot, and that's my point. My point is that you have to accept a cultural narrative, you have to accept a cultural tradition, and this is not done, you know, in three seconds, but my point is that what makes the nation is the people. It's not an idea. It's not the idea that I arrive on New York, right, in Ellis Island, and I have a dream, I'm going to build a restaurant, and I'm, all my dreams are going to come true. Because this concept, which is it's a concept, right, it's, it's out in the air, doesn't make a country. It's just an idea, right? It's not sufficient. To, I cannot start a corporation right now and say, okay, this is my idea. I'm going to invent a, a spaceship that's going to go to Mars, right? That's not sufficient to create a, a, anything, right? I'm just my idea. But I have to do something about it. A nation has to be built by people to do something, and it's not predicated on these all these beautiful concepts of democracy. It doesn't matter. The United States would exist without democracy or not if the people who build it are still there, right? Uh, the, uh, the trouble with the United States is that it is a concept nation. And we're told it's a concept. It's not a. It's not. It's not based on on uh, indigenous people. Well, well, that is the fault of, of the people for not standing up for the Constitution. Because mm-hmm. the Constitution says, it spells it out, that this document was left for, for us and our posterity. And posterity mm-hmm. means, in 18th century language, descendants and nothing else. Mm-hmm. So the 14th Amendment is unconstitutional because it breaks the contract that's expressly written into the preamble, uh, which... which provides the full intent of the document. You cannot append a document that denies its original intent. No wonder the Jews wanted to come uh, to the United States and uh, make their new, uh, their new uh, homeland in, in the U.S., which I think it is more than in Israel, truthfully, um, New York and so on, uh, well, all over. Uh, because it is a, it, it has forgotten all that, and it, they can talk about it as a concept nation where everybody is is uh, welcome. Or so they're they're succeeding in doing that in other nations, but it's not as easy as here. So uh, so there we are. We've got this uh, place yes, that. Uh, but Kevin, well, well, uh, go ahead. That they've corrupted the fabric of the nation right from the time of the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln. 
and and they were able to do that for whatever reason it is i believe it's totally scriptural but but for whatever reason i i haven't studied the actual mechanics of how they got the 14th amendment passed and the the, the daily routine and and the daily mentality of the people in the 1860s and 70s that allowed them to do that but it was wrong yes, it was but, wrong but, but, but sure. it's, it's interesting it's yeah it's interesting but what Carolyn is saying is interesting. It's it's an issue because I do have a qualm, uh, a, a problem with, and you know this, Bill, because we had this discussion before, and we may disagree a little bit, maybe on it. I don't know. But I just have an issue with a lot of the founding fathers because I believe they're a product of their time, and although they did, and you're absolutely correct, they did establish nation. It was clear, you know. White men were the only ones who could vote, that type of thing. So it was pretty clear that it was defined. There was a racial element to it. Blacks were considered partially human, although I think they even made a mistake in that. Um, I think that was too liberal. But anyway, that's the, right? I mean, let's be honest, right? I mean, they were being kind of liberal. But, but, but at the end of the day, um, the issue is there that I agree with Carolyn, which is that there is still an element of concept nation ideological nation involved in it that comes from the Enlightenment, right? It comes from this idea of abstraction, of, of morality abstraction that is independent of reality, but is more based on wishful thinking, on utopian type of philosophy of romanticism. Again, we go back to romanticism, which connects to Hitler, right? It goes back to this idea that is not classic, which is that you can have ideas like equality, uh, and even if it's, we're talking about equality of procedural equality, it is also a fallacy because no such thing as procedural equality can ever exist anywhere. And this is a fact that is not based on a cynicism, right? It's just because it is mathematically impossible. It is socially impossible, right? Because even in a, in a, it will be actually it will be unjust if you had procedural equality because that would mean that you and me with different experiences will be judged exactly the same for the same crime, and that would be unjust because there's different circumstances to each person, right? Um, so I think that this philosophy of the Enlightenment that it founds the United States and these men, there were great men, there were smart men, they're my people, right? But I think they were somewhat deluded in their perspective, and I think our natural tendency for universalism is the one that led Americans to take those views and turn them, on, on, and turn them loose on the world and make them universal, applying to everything. Apply the justice then should be universal, should be to everyone. Oh, equality, it should be to everyone. Oh, democracy should be to everyone. And I think that, that is the core, right? That was the Trojan horse of the United States was that philosophy that founded the United States based on these ideas instead of founding on the racial element of the people, right? On, on the basis of the people, on the, on, the, on the ethnicity of the people that founded it. And I think that is a flaw that is difficult to fight against. And I think it comes from philosophical. I mean, you read Thomas Paine. I read Thomas Paine, I, I, I want to strangle him. I'm being very honest. I mean, I think well, it's Well, I have man sitting on a table in front of me, right? And, and common sense <laughs> is sitting on a table in front of me. Uh, <laughs> I have uh, the Articles of Confederation sitting on a table in front of me, too, that have read. That they had some better ideas in them. Well, well um, yeah, you know, the, the Constitution is only an agreement between 13 states. Yes. 13 sovereign states that had the, the license, the full right license granted through their own self-determination and sovereignty to have their own rules as to who could become a citizen, as to who could partake in the fruits of that state, and, and, and as to who could vote. 
if you read the U.S. Constitution, it says that who you know each state can decide on its own who it can you know what what rules it could have and who would be allowed to vote, and, and that was the um, the autonomy and the sovereignty sovereignty of the states was recognized even by the Federalists at the time. They didn't like it. But they recognized it, and and I have proof of that in a in a, in a speech by John Quincy Adams, yeah. which is on Christogenia, to demonstrate that very thing, right? Well, well um, because the Constitution is only a pact between the thirteen states, it does not micromanage, it does not um, govern anything that was left up to the states, and and it was the individual responsibility of those states to maintain that ethnic homogeneity and, and that idea of posterity and and they didn't do it that they didn't do it they dropped the ball and and after the civil war the ball was taken from them yes no and i i understand and I, I agree with that i understand the 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 constitutional element of the separation of powers and and it is correct but, but for example, even the Federalist Papers, if you read them, you can, you can see smeared through it the French Revolution, right? It's like the baby French Revolution. It's like uh, oh, French yeah, Revolution, yeah. But the Federalist Papers were really half, of the, half of the battle, right? I, I mean, the anti-Federalist Papers, the Jews love the Federalist Papers. Yeah. The Jews hate the anti-Federalist Papers. You don't see yeah. them in, on the shelf at Barnes & Nobles. Yeah, exactly. No, no, that is absolutely correct. Uh, but you have... My 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 main idea, my main issue is is the 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 ideological element that 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 underpins the values that founded the United States, which I think have come come back to bite us, right? Uh, in, in the behind, well, absolutely. Um, you know that that's those ideas of liberté and and fraternité and egalité, and they're the unclean <laughs> revelation, right? <laughs> yeah. No, and, and I've heard your podcast about which is really cool. Three evil spirits of this age. They are the three evil spirits of this age. There's no doubt. Yeah, they're pretty bad. And remember, I mean, in the French, while well, the French Revolution was burning nuns and you know whatever, and they were killing uh, royalty and they were doing other stupid stuff like inventing their own religions and and having orgies in the streets. Whatever. The cult of reason. There was no yeah, reason though. Reason. Yeah, the cult of reason. You had Jefferson, you know, cheerleading, right? So there is a connection of, of philosoph- philosophical connection between them that I think it's somewhat dark, and that's the reason I, I tend to, to disparage it a little bit because I think it, it, it's been used uh, too much against us. But, of course, I do agree that, there's, that the United States was built as a separated entity, um, and, and the purpose of it was to allow each individual state and each individual county, as a matter of fact, the town, to manage itself, um, whether or not that ended up being a good thing is, is something else, right? <laughs> right. Well, well, you know, the founders, some of the founders did warn us. You, you know, Franklin warned us, Adams warned us, yeah, you know, that, that this, you know, that the, um, our liberty that we gained in the Revolutionary War from the nobles and, and the bankers in England, that it was going to be hard to keep. They did warn us, and, and we didn't keep it. What was it they said? A republic if they can keep it, or a republic if you can keep it. Right. There were several comments by by several of the founders. 
And here we are with no republic. We couldn't keep it. Well, well, exactly. And that, too, is a matter of biblical prophecy, that, that there are greater powers in play that we have to recognize. But Hitler did everything in his power to make Germany into a fascist national socialist republic for the people, by the people, for Germans, by Germans, instead of being a nation that had been hijacked by Jews. He basically took back the kingdom that the Jews had usurped and taken by violence. Well, well the way I see it, our brethren, our Germanic brethren, were free of the Jew, and we took it back off them because we co-conspired with the Jew to, to um, re-enslave Germany. So we don't deserve our own freedom, do we? Yeah, I would say that. I think no, the United finally, States has a terrible history. Yeah, it started out well, but boy, it's certainly... I, that's, right. why, that's why I'm talking about Hitler. I do think that the founding of, of National Socialist Germany is a better example of what I like and of the values that I uh, ascribe to and of a better future than the founding of almost any other nation uh, that, that was political, you know, something that was founded oh, on politics oh. and founded on a nation, you know? Hitler had that insight, and, and, and it's a very special insight, I think, in, in the face of all the propaganda that our race has been hit with the two, last 200 years, that the people, the folk, they were the state, that the people mattered. Nothing else mattered except the preservation of the race. Everything else, when you preserve the race, takes care of itself. And Hitler led the effort in Germany to break the shackles imposed upon the German nation and the German people by the Jews. And the Anglo-Americans, basically, we led the charge to put the shackles back on. Absolutely. The greatest generation is the greatest generation of whores for the Jews. There's no doubt. Yes, and it's, I think it's sentimentality. That, that the, I think the, the Enlightenment led to a, sent, uh, a heightened sense of sentimentality, right? But emotional well, attachment to a lot of people. They do so well at playing on that. Look at all the propaganda music after, after 9-11. Yeah, and it's all emotional. It's all emotional. It's, and I'm not saying this disparagingly, but it's somewhat, it's, it's feminized, right? It's a feminine oh. view. Nietzsche talked about this all the time. It's a feminine view of the universe, right? And, and our people fall for it. Mm-hmm. This whole country fell for it. Toby Keith, he started singing that dumbass song about the towers falling down and everybody's hearts melted. Well, yeah, everything is sentimentalized. I think I agree with that uh, nowadays. I, uh, I hate it. I mean, everything is so sentimentalized. And that's why I find uh, uh, the, uh, the Hitler movement, you might say, so attractive. It's so masculine. I like, I like the word hard. I don't, hmm. But I like... The, the you know that 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 there needs to be a hardness there needs to be and this this goes along with natural understanding natural law and not thinking that you can over override it you know as as human beings uh, and Hitler make utopias that. that don't really work. Hmm? Yeah, Hitler was obsessed with that. Hitler did constantly make references to to nature, natural law, and and humans thinking that they can go above natural law. They can define nature, and he was constantly pointing out that human beings cannot define nature. The natural reality is natural reality, and you should not defy it, which is the reason they call him a social Darwinist, because he's always making this statement of nature. Um, but the sentimental aspect of it, because there's still emotion, there is there's spirit, there's emotion, there's love, but sentimentality is a different thing. Sentiment, sentimentality comes 
from a weaker disposition. It comes from a position of weakness, of victimhood. It comes from the position of someone who feels abused. And it's a very dark version of emotion. And Americans fall for it constantly. Animal rights is a good example of it. Uh, Hitler loved animals. But there's a difference between that and strapping yourself to a cow before they're going to kill it, right? There's two, there's two mentalities that are different. And I think <laughs> the, the, the idea of liberating the slaves is an extension of animal rights. Because I'm being very honest, it sounds, it sounds dark now, but in those days, if you read abolitionists, they describe blacks as, as animals who were being abused and had to be liberated because they were being abused by their masters. But their mentality was a mentality of animal rights. These beasts have to be, they can't be beaten all the time, it's abusive, they should, you know, they should be given more water, et cetera, et cetera. It was an animal right. Even if you read Lincoln, Lincoln treats them like animals and describes them as beasts who are being abused. And all of this is based on sentimentality. Oh, I'm so poor them. I mean, look at me. I'm, I'm drinking tea right now, and I'm dressed so nicely, and these guys are naked and being beaten, right? It's all sentimental, but it's based on the position of you not acknowledging the reality that you are in a particular position and these other creatures are in another, and that you don't belong in that position, and therefore you shouldn't make decisions for them. Uh, usually it actually comes back anyway because you're making decisions for people that are not you, and you end up screwing them even worse, right? I mean, because they actually screw blacks worse now than before, in my opinion. That is so right. That is so right. And, and a sentimentality is, okay, a weak form of, of, uh, of emotional expression. Emotion is so important. It's so powerful. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't function in any way without it. Um, and yet uh, the sentimentality is what is being promoted all the time. You know, they say the Jews are, you know, these great uh, show, show business people. Uh, they they are good music uh, songwriters and so on. That's true. And so they they're they're responsible for all these sentimental songs and all this sentimental stuff. Not that other people yeah. don't have their ability to be sentimental too. I mean, there's a lot of sentimentalism yeah. everywhere, but they but they, appeal, they really push it. Yeah, they appeal to and in movies. I think yeah, it started with Irving Berlin, right? I, I mean, that's yeah. the first time I've noticed it. It is and all the the patriotic movement music during during the first world war that's when they started with all that crap that's the way i see it yes but it appeals to a a, a baser element of our nature which is yes. the, the, the 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 position of of victim and the position mm-hmm. of of weakness and the the appeal to to protecting the underdog which is ie the, the trash, right? Let's be honest, right? Because the, the, the term underdog, it sounds nice, right? Because we have, because Americans and most of the people in the world have been indoctrinated to, to root for the, for the, for the imbecile, right? Uh, and I understand the rooting for the imbecile. The idea sounds nice to a lot of people. But in nature, no animal roots for the imbecile, right? I mean, it's not a natural thing to do. But they appeal no. to you on this because it appeals to your sense, your fake, uh, egocentric sense of superiority, right? That's what I, I've, I've said before. The liberals are the worst kind, right? Because they protect blacks because deep down they consider them to be inferior and pathetic, and they want to protect them and defend them from those who want to abuse them. And that sentiment is a very dark sentiment because it implies an acceptance that these people are weak, are pathetic, are incapable of achievement, and therefore they have to be constantly protected and constantly defended. And that's... And, 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 yeah. Yeah, and, and with this idea that they're not 
that, that they can be the same, that they can achieve, that they can graduate from college, that they can do all these things. Well, only a few of them can do those things. Exactly. So, so it's dishonest. I mean, it's totally dishonest, and it creates a, 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 an insane society. It's, it's, dishonest. It's, it's dishonest, but what's fun about it, and I've written about this before, is that it basically agrees with us on the idea of white supremacy and what really white supremacy means, which is the supremacy of the white race. Liberals agree with us on this, absolutely. They are 100% in agreement with us. The difference is that we acknowledge this reality and don't wish to downgrade ourselves, and they acknowledge that reality and wish to defend the poor pets because blacks are really liberal pets, right? Well, that's, they yeah. are. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I've said this before. When you take aliens from out of the jungles or from other places and you bring them into your home and you have to feed them and you have to clothe them and you have to push them through an educational system, then they are pets. They are not people. They're pets because they've been cared for all their lives. And who the hell ever told us that we should intermarry with our pets? It's crazy. <laughs> well, and then this, this sentimental uh, attitude that the people that have it, the, the liberals and so on, uh, they're very proud of it. I mean, they brag about it. They think it's a superior attitude. Well, if they, if they could put a black man in their purse and walk it around the mall, they would. In their purse? Yeah, like a dog, like a little dog. They could parade it around, show it to their friends. That's why they mm -hmm. all have black friends, so they can go to dinner parties and say, hey, I have a black friend. Look how great he is. And it would be even better if it could be a homosexual black man because then he has like a combo, right? He, he's, she's covering both elements of the friend that she's required to have to prove that she's sophisticated and advanced. But, but, but the attitude is itself demeaning and degrading to these people, and that's what I think is hilarious because at the end of the day, Ironically, I am giving them a lot more respect in general than they are because I don't treat them like pets and I don't want them in my home and I don't want to feed them and I want them to go and fend for themselves. And that is actually more respect for their integrity than treating them like pets that I have to constantly dedicate my life to defend them. And there are those blacks who, who, uh, who see it that way too and who have been uh, uh, leaders of these black uh, independent movements and so on. Uh, but they're always uh, beaten down by the white liberals and the Jews. Yeah, I'd rather have a, a, you know, a new Black Panther guy screaming about crackers and wanting to go back to Africa. I'd rather have that than any of these other freaks that run around the country because at least I can make sure that this guy will leave. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I, I have a, 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 an excerpt from Hitler from Mein Kampf from page 219 in, in Murphy's translation. And, and he starts out, he's really talking about the Austrian Germans and the Austrian Slavs and the Germanization of the Slavs. And, and that's how he starts out. And, and what he says is what they mean mostly by Germanization was the process of forcing other people to speak the German language. And, and now he changes the focus away from the Slavs, and it's obvious. And he says but it is almost inconceivable how such a mistake could be made as to think that a nigger or a Chinaman will become a German because he has learned the German language and is willing to speak German for the future and even to cast his vote for a German political party. Our bourgeois nationalists 
could never clearly see that such a process of Germanization is in reality de-Germanization. For even if all the outstanding invisible differences between the various peoples could be bridged over and finally wiped out by the use of a common language, that would produce a process of bastardization, and, and that's the goal of the Jews, right? A bastardization, which in this case would not signify Germanization, but the annihilation of the German element. Well, why do they want to bastardize and destroy us, Bill? I think it was Maurice Samuels who said in You Gentiles, he said, we are destroyers, we Jews are destroyers and will remain destroyers. Nothing you Gentiles do will ever satisfy us. We will continue to destroy because we want a world of our own. Well, that's what they want, a world of their own, and a world of their own is a bastardized world because everything they've ever done it is a bastardization. I mean, so they, they don't want live and let live. Oh no, that's on, that that is only rhetoric that they use as a defense mechanism. And once they get the ability to launch an offensive, they forget about the rhetoric. Mm -hmm. They only use that oh. when they're a weak, powerless minority in some healthy, strong, homogenous nation, and they want to be extended tolerance and freedom. Yes. And as soon as they get the upper hand, and we see it in this country, it's happening right now, everything changes real quick. But you go from freedom of speech when the Jews don't have the upper hand. As soon as they get the upper hand, it becomes a tyranny. Hate speech. Yes. Yeah, we have to somehow ignore people against the arguments of the, uh, of the egalitarianism and the Jews' uh, uh, arguments and so on. They're very strong. They're, they're everywhere. And uh, people believe him. So we, we don't have any power to do anything. Uh, Hitler had some power. He could amass some power uh, in his position where he was at that time. And even then they managed to, to defeat him, uh, even though it, they, it wasn't all these mistakes of his. Here's another area. It's getting kind of late. But, um, you know, that they want to say, oh, I say they want to say, well, many people who might even be uh, uh, positive toward Hitler, but then they will say, but he, he made all these mistakes. Uh, I don't think he made as many mistakes as he's, as he's accused of making. Uh, of course, everybody makes some mistakes. Sure. Uh, you can't help it. But, uh, he wasn't you know, an idiot. What, no, he wasn't. And, uh, but even, even though he did so well, uh, he couldn't stand up against uh, all these forces around when they massed you know, all around him like that. So uh, what chance what chance does anybody have now? Uh, it has to be that, uh, and he changed the thinking of the German people, and that was not easy. The German people were not uh, all in line with, with that thinking in the beginning because they had been brainwashed for a long time. Uh, well, we've all been brainwashed. Well, so, uh, we think things are bad today, though, Carolyn. We think things are bad today, but the Germans really had to suffer long and hard before they got on board with Hitler. I mean, imagine taking an entire wheelbarrow full of money and you buy a, a gallon of milk and a loaf of bread. We're not even near there yet in, in this country. Right. Yeah, but, you know, Mark Anthony said that 20 mongrel dogs can kill a lion, right? So mm -hmm. it's a good line. Well, Hitler made a point, though, that a coalition of cripples cannot overcome a strong empire. 
when he was talking about the idea that Austria, Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire were useful allies for Germany and that Germany should have pursued an alliance with Russia against Austria or Britain against Russia, and that the idea of going with Austria, Hungary, and the Ottomans to fight France, Russia, Britain, and eventually the U.S., he said that was a losing idea. Well, well you know, some, the white nation versus white nation chess game is a losing idea, right? Mm-hmm. Has anybody here read the Hitler's Last Will and Testament? The reason I, I, I asked this is because it is kind of a cool closure of Hitler's views on on what was happening, right? Um, his, his last yeah, I read testament. it just I read it just recently. What did you want to? Yeah, it's an amazing. I read it again recently. Yeah, it's an amazing read, right? I mean, it's very clear-headed. Mm-hmm. It's it's actually one of my favorite writings, right? Because it's very clear-headed, and it basically goes to almost every element of a lot of his decisions. He actually is very open about him feeling that he committed some mistakes and did other things that he couldn't control, right? But it's, it's an awesome testament. I think every nationalist, every white person should read it because I think it it gives you a very uh, good perspective on his state of mind and actually shows that he was not insane as they try to say that in the last year he was crazy you can when you read this it's pretty clear he was not crazy it was pretty clear well i just uh, i just recently read uh finished hitler's last secretary which is uh trial Junga. but you know uh oh, i don't know how, how is that Jung? is that east island trial Jung, you know his his youngest secretary and uh she is the one who took down uh that his dictation of his last will and testament, and she was there throughout right to the end. Um, and it's very interesting. And in this book, it's called Hitler's Last Secretary because it's been put together by this Melissa Mueller, who writes uh, the foreword and then writes a bunch of stuff at the back. But the part by Trial Young is supposed to be, and it seems to be, uh, her own writing, un- unedited, that she wrote uh, after she, when she was um, still in prison by the Allies. Uh, before they let her go, and or maybe right after that, too. I don't remember exactly, but uh, she wrote this as as just a, a mem- uh, her own memories, like in 1946. Um, I think it was. I don't think it even went into 47. And uh, it's so interesting. And she tells in the at the end there uh, that uh, when she when he wanted her, wanted to dictate that he suddenly was in kind of a hurry. And uh, he he called her in. They went into this room, and and he he was he was uh, standing in front of a table. Uh, he put his hands on the table. He kind of bent forward, and he thought a little bit, and then he started. And she said he went right through it without a single break, a single stop. And she could hardly keep up with him. Uh, she said that she, usually he was more more considerate than that, but this time he uh, she was just struggling to keep up, but she did. And they were so anxious for her to file. Then she had to re, you know, redo, retype it or something after he was done, after she was finished with the dictating, because it's a different kind of a machine that they used. And they just kept coming in and saying, are you done yet? Are you done yet? And uh, and finally, Gebel's uh, just about ripped the last page out of her typewriter. <laughs> Although he had a real friendly relationship with his secretaries. I love yeah. reading what they say about him. And, uh, and this was... Uh, and then he, he then he dictated uh, I don't forget which one was first but he dictated the one about his marriage and so on his uh, will uh, and uh, but uh, this was how it was done 
and uh, and it was uh, the next day that he shot himself. And I'm gonna on my program on the I have I have a uh, Heretics Hour program on April 30th, which is the day that he shot himself. And I'm gonna I'm gonna use that program to talk about the last days and some of these things. Oh, awesome! Yeah, because it's a, it's a really important document. I've heard a lot of people talk about Hitler, and they talk about all oh, his mistakes or what he did, but they never have seemed to read this, where he specifically addresses a lot of these issues personally. He actually goes into these issues. He, he mentions Mussolini, etc. So what I mean is, mm-hmm. it, it, it's an important document, so it's great that you're going to have a show that you're going to discuss that, because it's actually an important document. Thanks. And Hitler called uh, upon I, I, the entire I, world to rise against Jewry in his last testament. Yes. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, he's not going to say, please <laughs> forgive him. <laughs> You know, he certainly didn't say it was wrong. He said he, uh, which is why they don't like it. They don't like it because he didn't show any regret. And they, he was still, still paranoid when he died. You know, he didn't see any. Yes. He had not seen the light. You know, um, but he said that he would, he would be shown to be right. And we're certainly pointing out we think he was right. He was absolutely. Right. Yeah, you know, we talk about Hitler's mistakes, and, and, and I don't think he had Providence on his side because, as I discussed in my Revelation series, I think Providence has a different plan, and, and that doesn't mean that, that, that Adolf Hitler won't live on. He certainly will. He definitely has his place in heaven. There's no doubt. And he will win in the end because we will all win in the end. I have no doubt. We like to talk about Hitler's mistakes. I've talked about some of Hitler's mistakes. But, you know, Hitler what was just on the wrong side of history. He did the right thing. He did what he had to do. The German people and the German nation did the right thing by standing up to the Jew. And we should all stand up to the Jew. Instead, most of us are still supporting the Jew. We're still buying Hollywood movies and we're still buying mm-hmm. Jewish newspapers and Jewish mm-hmm. media. We're still feeding the hand that's killing us and, and it's destroying our nation. And, and we do we, we take out bank loans, we feed the Jews. It, it's that there's a million things that most Americans do every day to their own that, that perpetuates their own enslavement. What Hitler could not have foreseen when he freed his nation from the hand of the Jew was that the Rothschilds were powerful enough and influential enough to bring the entire world against Germany. And, and they did, basically, mm-hmm. they did. Mm-hmm. And, That's and that, right. Yeah, you know how- well, I think Hitler is still an inspiration. I think he's, obviously, to many, many people, and it's not just a handful of uh, fringe, fringe people and, you know, uh, extremists or what have you. Um, he still uh, inspires many people, and I think that's going to actually is on the increase now. Well, well I, extremist is another word I, I would wear with distinction, right? I, I mean, a, extremist means that you're contrary to the Jews <laughs> and the Jewish paradigm, which mm-hmm. is an anti-Christ paradigm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, well, we're not fences, right? What? No, it means that you don't sit. You don't sit on fences, right? You're not sitting on the center, right? That's what an extreme means. You're one side, extreme side. That's a good position to be on. Yeah. I I hate fence sitters. I sometimes accuse some friends of mine of uh, a good friend of mine of sitting on the fence, Uh, and I and I know he he kind of does, but 
uh, well, that's just the way it is. But I, I really, uh, I, you know, I just can't tolerate uh, for myself. I can't tolerate sitting on the fence. I have to make up my mind one way or the other. And, you know, kind of join in on one side or the other. Well, the, light's either on, the light's either on or off. You either drive on the right side of the road or the left side. You don't drive down the middle of the road. Yeah. Well, with that, maybe we could end this program. I, I, uh, we could go for two more hours if you just want. But I, don't, I, don't know. Well, I think we've established our, we achieved our objectives that we established and set out to achieve. We've shown that Hitler was a, a decent man who, who saw his nation in distress, and he decided that rather than sitting by and watching it fall apart and doing nothing, he was going to do something. And he devoted himself to salvaging the situation and putting Germany back on the right track, and the Jews wouldn't stand for that. So the Anglo-American-Soviet alliance destroyed Germany. Well, well, right. And, and all Christian identists and, and everybody listening to this podcast should follow in that pattern. You should stand up for your race, for the white race, and oppose the Jew and, and stop supporting the hands that, that, that are biting you. I, I mean, that, that's kind of a play on, on the, the usual saying, right? And, and and that's the way it should be. We should all follow Adolf Hitler and Jesus Christ or Yahshua Christ in opposing the, the creators of the world's perversions. And and we have to. That's our obligation as men and, and women and, and Christians. And, and well, I, white people. I can go along with that, Bill. I, I can endorse that. Well, if we love God, we have to be opposed to the enemies and the adversaries of God. And who was the most opposed to God? The people who murdered him. Right. Right. And and the Jews are the Jews <laughs> you know, they that they're responsible for the world's greatest hate crime. They perpetrated the world's greatest hate crime. They aside. They killed God. And and that's the way Christians should look at it. And and when the Jew runs his mouth about his persecution and his oppression, you tell him you're responsible for the world's greatest hate crime. Nothing transcends that. They okay. kill him in the flesh, and they're trying to kill him in the minds of every you know white person in the Western world. Thank you for being here, and and um, it, it's been wonderful. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for having me here, Bill. Praise Yahweh. <laughs>